0: Hey there, another episode here. In the kitchen, on the phone. I feel like this is a good style. It allows me to pace. You know, because when I'm on walks, if I do a mobile episode when I'm on a walk, I'm generally... I do pace a little bit. Like, I will kind of, like, stand on the same street and walk back and forth like a complete freak. <laughs> Especially if, I, if I'm talking to... Or I do that on the phone, too. Like, if I'm talking to a friend on the phone and I'm on a walk and I get back to my car you know, I'll just pace around near my car and I don't know, I feel like it's a good style. Uh, But being able to walk in my kitchen back and forth is just ideal. But anyway, I don't know, as today's gone on, as tonight's gone on, it's just like more and more of this late night dread is set in. And I don't know what it is. I mean, I guess part of it might be that like today's the first day that I've actually looked at anything. Like I still, I'm I'm not checking any social media or it's been a couple of weeks since I've been on there. Not because I'm, you know, once again, it's not because I'm anti-social media, as I've said many times. Like I, I think it's a good tool. I just, I had to just shut the, you know, shut the, the door, close the blinds. And uh, I've been working on other things and I just, it's just right now, who has the time for that? Um but also today I just kind of like like went through some stuff on the computer, just kind of like current events sort of stuff, and you took a quick look at a couple things, and it was just, I don't know, it just I guess I hadn't exposed myself to that, and over the last couple weeks, just kind of being in my own zone, like as I've gone to stores, I'm like, oh, more and more people are wearing masks again. Like almost everybody in the store is wearing a mask again, and I'm just like, oh, I think things are fucked up again. Not that they ever stopped, but I'm just like... I'm just getting, it's not just that, it's not some coronavirus thing even, it's just kind of the whole thing, I'm just starting to get the feel for it, after this kind of little burst where it was kind of like, okay, things feel good, it's summer, now I'm just kind of like, oh no, things seem really fucked up, and people seem to be really out of orbit. Whereas like I honestly don't, I, I truly don't feel, I mean, I stayed up for 40 hours straight last weekend, I, like, I, I mean, I don't, that's the whole weekend pretty much, but... I ended up staying up for forty hours straight, uh, just working on something. I don't do that. I don't. I don't like to pull all night all nighters, but there are sometimes where you just like lay down in bed, and you just immediately go, "I'm not sleeping." And that happened to me a few months ago, six months ago, but had it the other day. But that said, I'm not, I'm truly not out of orbit. I feel incredibly grounded. I feel good overall, but I just tonight set in. I'm just getting this like real sense of dread. And I'm just like, oh, oh man. Because, you know, I mean, something I want to comment on that I feel like doesn't get addressed, because it's like our culture has placed so much emphasis on, like, you like what you like. I always think about this old documentary. My friend Miles had it. Uh, it's Bob Larson, who was a, a pastor who, like, really went after Satanism and heavy metal. I like him. And I say that non-ironically, he's just, I mean, he, he went on tour with Slayer to like investigate them and they let him. And then he made this documentary, I guess it's kind of like a, I I imagine it was intended for Christians or I guess it was just, he interviews fans of heavy metal and he interviews some bands and he's interviewing like this band, Laz Rocket, who was, you know, a thrash metal band and he's, and like, they would answer a question because he was asking them about like religion and. He's trying to get to the bottom of like where they stand spiritually and that kind of thing. And Laz Rocket, I think one of them was like, oh, I'm a Catholic, and you know, this and that. Cause I mean, it's not like they're a satanic band that I know of. And Bob Larson was like, Yeah, but Slayer said. And that was always a joke with Miles and I, like, oh, but Slayer said. Because it was like he went on tour with Slayer and it was so impactful to him that it was like that became his that was like his standard mean. And anything any other band said, it was like, well, well but Slayer said this. Um, and this is like, oh, well, that's Slayer. But I like Bob Larson. I have a book that he wrote about cults, which is cool. I feel like that's a good, that it's kind of a sacred object to me. I've never read all the way through it. But anyway, in that documentary, there's a part where He has this group of like Heshers and these bad girls and they're sitting, you know, it's like a black background and they're sitting, you know, it's like what you would expect almost from like public access, you know, interview or or any, any Christian channel type thing of that, from that era, from the eighties, maybe early nineties. And there's a part where he has all these Heshers and kids sitting there and he's asking them questions about themselves and he pulls out a Danzig record. It's it's the Danzig self titled on vinyl, <laughs> and he, he just holds it up, and uh, he, like he asks them about it, and this girl says she she's a fan, and he's like, well, "What do you like about it?" And she's like, "I don't know, I like the beat," <laughs> and then I because that's so that's a phrase where it's like I like the beat, like it's something that people have always said going back, like as if it's like this primitive thing, like. I don't know. Cause I guess when I think about like the kind of music that people who say that are into, it's not like beat oriented music. Like, yeah, it has drums and that's important, but it's like Danzig. Like, I would never, in all these years of being a Danzig fan, I never thought about like, I like the beat. I, I, I like that, I like that oomph drum sound, you know? It, it's a great drum sound, but I just, I never would have thought to focus on that. I like the beat. But it's, it's that sort of thing where, like you're allowed to feel that way. That, that whole thing about Bob Larson was just so that I can say like our culture has encouraged the fact that like you can like the entertainment you like, you can like the music you like, and yeah, people moralize. Like someone like Bob Larson, I mean the thing about Bob Larson is like he seemed, I don't recall him ever saying that music should be banned. It was just like he wanted to expose it and investigate it, I guess. I mean, he probably he might have called for it to be banned, but still, it's, he, he seemed to be into it. Like, not that he listened to the music and liked it, but it was like, he seemed to want to be involved, I guess is how I'd put Bob Larson. It's like, it's not just, oh, Bob Larson's, uh, you know, uh, hating on bands that I like. Oh, Bob Larson's hating on Slayer. It's like him going on tour with them. Like, he's their merch guy or something, you know? That's amazing. <laughs> and uh, so it's, it's like he, he attached himself to it. Like, it was almost like this symbiotic relationship. And then, like, when, when heavy metal and all that stuff kind of went out of favor and everybody, like, started listening to rap, Bob Larson, you know, had to kind of change course because it was no longer relevant to talk about, like, Satanism and rock and metal. And so now he's a uh, – he does, like, exorcisms and stuff, but – but anyway, just like you were allowed to just... If someone was like, well, what do you like about that thing? You'd just be like, I like the beat. I like the beat. Uh, and and for that matter, but the, like you weren't questioned. Like, yeah, people moralize. People will say, like, oh, you shouldn't listen to that because it's satanic. Like, evangelicals targeted music that they thought was satanic, and they painted with a broad brush. And then now it's like people going after any artist or musician who... You know, people not listening to Morrissey or thinking you should walk out of a Morrissey 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 show, which like my friend did, and I, I respect his opinion. He's one of my best friends. Which, like, I like to use things as examples, not to like shit on people I love. I just, to me, it's like I use things like that as an example because it's like, oh hey, this person who I think the best of truly, like, did something that. I wouldn't do and that tells me that like I have a different philosophy and there is like a breaking point like like that person is not like a censor he just made a personal decision to walk out of a Morrissey show and I respect that because if you told me I had to stay at any freaking music show yeah I'm not going to tell you what I would do I'm not going to I'm not going to tell you Slayer said but uh No, I respect his decision because that was a personal decision. It's not like his opinion was like, Morrissey should be, no more records, ban his records, and kill him. You know, if that was my friend's opinion, that'd be different. And I'd be shocked because I've known this person a long time. But So like, when I bring up examples like that, it's not to be like, oh, my friend's stupid. It's just to be like, someone felt that way. Um, but, but now we're at this point where it's like people are, are actually saying, like, this shouldn't be allowed. You can't sell this. You can't sell this on Discogs. You can't sell this on eBay. You can't, you know, and, and it's, again, it's painted with a very broad brush. Uh, and so, you know, we're at that point. Um, but not just that. It's not just the, like trying to prevent things. What's weird is like after all these years of being like, hey, don't make fun of someone's taste. Don't tell people what they sh- they should like or not like. Like there has... Like it's a, it's been a common viewpoint in liberalism specifically. Maybe that's where I needed to go with it. Is that like liberal parents, for example, are known for what? Letting their kids listen to whatever music they want. That's a pretty common trait with liberal parents. Like all my friends who had to deal with parents who were like, you can't listen to that. You can't. It it was almost always fairly conservative. But I mean, I had friends whose parents were very conservative, who let their kids listen to stuff because they trusted them. You know, so it's not one thing or another. But it was kind of a liberal parent trait to be like, yeah, you know, this is a phase, maybe. Oh, yeah, we don't, we don't really like Slayer, but this is a phase. You know that it's just a common trait, and I mean, and it kind of applied to a lot of entertainment. But I think music is one that I'm going to focus on, because it does. People just can't go without it. Like people can't walk down the street, they can't go for a jog, they can't drive their car, they can't grocery shop, they can't be in their house. Like people are literally listening to music all the freaking time. I don't. Like I don't. I don't wear headphones when I walk or run or anything like that. I just. I don't know, I don't I'm I'm cool with just taking in the sounds, and I'm I'm far too paranoid. Even with these like ambient headphones or whatever they are, where it's like you can hear ambient noise or or noises, but the music still sounds like it's in your ear. I love music more than anything, and I've devoted a lot of my life to that passion, yet I don't like music that much. I don't need to hear music every freaking place I go, and in fact I think it's disruptive. Um but anyway, uh, <laughs> music like ignites people's passions. Obviously, like as someone who loves it, I also hate it more than anything. I equally love and hate music. you know, I, I, I mean that. Um, there's very little neutrality or ambivalence when it comes to music with a lot of people, which is why they're so opinionated. And it also seems to be the one thing that people really tell each other is like people tell each other off about it. Like, I've done that to people my entire life. Like, I hopefully less now. But when I was a teenager, you know, like any teenager who gets into music, it's like I would, I would practically tell people off about it. Things that I don't even agree with now. Of course I don't. But it's like, and then everybody I knew was like that too. Even people who were just into, like, mainstream music. It was. It's not even a thing where it's like people who were into obscure lesser-known stuff or had gotten into the underground, it's something, like, even even the most mainstream people will be like, oh, your taste in music sucks. You know, you should listen to Tool. You know, there's, there's people who are into stuff like that who are especially that way. And uh, so, so it's like, it's just this, there's this constant, like, competition and, like, jockeying for, you know, it's like you're trying to find your place in the taste market or something like you're trying to assert the fact that like your taste is better. And you know, at this point I don't understand that way of thinking. I do think some things suck, but worse than that, like I think there are some things that it's not that they suck. It's not like that, like musically or anything are bad. It's like you can see the trick. Like it's like the, it's like being able to see the magic trick and it just makes things unenjoyable. And a lot of music is that way. Um, But, uh, you know, with this, I've noticed this thing that's gone on, especially as this sort of neoliberalism has taken over the arts. Like, again, like the arts used to be liberal. I mean, there's a reason why artists are associated with that. There's a lot more conservative minded artists than people realize because they're not as upfront about it, maybe. Um, and And I'm talking historically, too but you know it's the arts are associated with liberalism and there's a certain kind of form of thinking that goes along with liberalism that lends itself to the arts that you know sees the the function of it whereas like that is one of the problems with more conservative minded people even though i lean that way like even though i would say beyond politics i am a conservative minded person who says hmm you know maybe we shouldn't go that far Maybe we should move at a steadier pace. Like, I don't mind moving, but let's move at a steadier pace. That's kind of my conservatism. It's like I know we might move in a certain direction, but let's move with deliberation. Um, that's kind of how I see things. Move in what direction? Well, that's another question. I don't always agree with the direction that people want to move in, but I'm not afraid to move. Um, but, uh, you know, liberalism has always been associated with the arts. And, you know, for good reason. I mean, there's a lot, I mean, am I going to say that that's resulted in horrible art? No, of course not. Some of the greatest artists, some of the best bands, all sorts of things have, have had a, a kind of a liberal slant to them. Not even politically. Again, I want to emphasize the ink. When I use those terms, it includes politics to some degree, but I think of it as more just like a mindset, more of a philosophy that applies to every aspect of life. And uh, let's see, (laughs) you know, when when neoliberalism took over, that's what I was going to get to, it's like at some point in the last, it, it probably started much earlier than I even realized, maybe it was always there, but it definitely crept up and it's definitely been dominant for the last 10 years for sure. I think it started to become obvious in the last 10 years. That's how I'd put it. This sort of neoliberalism in the arts, which is where things are far more narrative driven. Cuz like just look at like a Gen X comic book and it's like there's this sort of like celebration of nihilism and, you know, like sort of slacker culture. And and not even like being a real slacker, but the idea of like coming across like a slacker. You know, Gen X, when Gen X started to do sort of like real life comic books, if you're familiar with that sort of stuff, I can't even think of an example. Like even, you know, even like image comics and stuff kind of had a little bit of this in a, you know, like a superhero sort of way. Anti-hero, that was sort of the whole thing. That's like like another part of it. That's a good example because it was like comic books, even comic books that would otherwise be called superheroes became anti-heroes, which is... Guys who do good things, but they're kind of in this gray area that looks a little darker than maybe it is, and they're conflicted about their who they are or their past, but they ultimately do good things. That was Image Comics. That was the 1990s comic book boom in a nutshell. It was a lot of stuff like that, and it was refreshing because it contrasted with bright color, goofy 1940s, 1950s-style superheroes. And then now, like, things went back. Like, we got enough of the anti-hero. We got enough of this kind of dark and moody, existential, almost nihilistic superhero. And then people wanted—people got really into Marvel again, you know? Uh, So there is that dance back and forth. But, you know, you compare that era, you compare that, like, Gen X sort of— you know, there was a narrative, but, but sometimes you didn't really know what it was. And it's like, you think about Kevin Smith movies, which I was really into when I was like 12 or 13. I got really into those Kevin Smith movies. I think they're perfect for a 12 and 13 year old. Like it, it, if you're looking to show your kid, if you got a 13 year old boy at home and you're looking to show them the perfect movie, show them clerks, show them Mallrats. No, that really was the perfect thing. I don't think I would ever be able to watch those movies again. But when when my friends and I were that age, like that was the perfect thing for us to watch. But those are a good point. Like I was talking to you know somebody who was just like oh, I don't even know what they're about, and it's like well that's kind of the thing. It's like they're just people hanging out and observing things. They're like a um, I don't know. And I don't I don't want to analyze them too much because they just are what they are. And I haven't I haven't seen them for a long time. They're like a, I'm trying to think of the word. There's a specific word I need to find here, and uh, no, it's it's just basically like suburbia and that sort of thing distilled down into you know this sort of entertaining, slightly offensive but not really, you know, sort of movie. Man, I it's like a caricature. I think, I don't feel like that was the word I was looking for, but it's like, they're just these like caricatures of suburbia and hanging out and they kind of make you feel, it's like there's like an element of boredom and pointlessness, like that nihilism, but it's like somehow it seems really desirable. Like when you watch those movies, even though it's like a bunch of losers, like just working in convenience stores and doing nothing, like you watch that and and especially if you're a 13 year old boy and you're like, I want to be there. You know, you're like, I want to go into that video store. You know, it's, it's sort of like what was nice about growing up during that era. Like I was, of course, a little bit younger than those people, but it's like, that was sort of, it it is a good snapshot in a way of that era where like, that's what my sister and her friends seemed like to me. Like they were older than I was, you know, they were seven years older and they like, they just kind of seemed like that. Like every once in a while, her guy friends when she was in high school would like take me out with them. And I would sit in the back seat and they'd be babysitting me. Just be like these two guys who are like skateboarders, like potheads. They listen to punk. They're just, you know, into whatever. And they would just kind of take me out, like go to a video store. Like you go by some guy's house, you know, and that was just how it was. And it was, that was the sort of feeling that I had, you know, it was kind of like being in one of those movies. And that was really desirable for a while. Like that's what people wanted. But like now it's it's like it's like it took like the backwash of that and it's but it's like with this moralizing narrative-driven aspect. And it, it kind of I mean, I mean those movies are a good example, those Kevin Smith movies, because I remember people saying back then and just being like, Why would you watch those? Like it's just kind of you know, it doesn't seem like something that you would want to see. Like it doesn't there's really no compelling story it's just kind of these different people interacting, and that's what people wanted to see. Um, but it's like nobody would really challenge you on it, though. Like, if you're just into stuff like that, it's like nobody would really, like, talk down to you for your taste in something. Because there was this sort of liberal encouragement of, like, hey, like, everybody just likes what they like. Like, don't shame people. It was There was this element in the air that was like, don't taste shame people. And... Or, or not even don't taste shame people because people did kind of like talk shit about what other people liked. More so it was like you were allowed to just, the things you liked are what you liked. Like if someone asked you like what your 10 favorite bands are and you were like Rush, Black Sabbath, Nirvana. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you gave this list, nobody would say, I, I can't help but notice you didn't have any black artists on there. I noticed that you didn't have any women country and I mean I had an interaction like that where again this is a person who was a friend of mine that I used to hang out with all the time and I would still consider her a friend we just don't see each other very often but I was taught we were talking about country music and this is way back when this is like you know eight years ago so far long ago no but that's a while ago for me like eight years ago And I just said, oh, yeah, like, so-and-so is one of my favorite female country artists. And she was like, female country? Like, the fact that I wasn't... It was like an actor-actress kind of thing. Like, the fact that I made the distinction. The fact that I didn't just say country artist. And it was just like, you know, here I am talking about something I like. You know, here I am talking about an artist I like. I just happened to make the distinction that it's a female artist. And I listened to primarily male country, you know, but it was just one of those weird little moments where it was like, it was somehow offensive that I designated that the artist was female rather than just saying country artist. It was just a weird little interaction. And uh, this is somebody too that I, this was, you know, a person I hung out with all the time. This isn't like some weird internet comment. This is something that happened in person, you know, and, uh, You know, so there's stuff like that, but it's like, here's another thing. Like, there's a guy I know, and once again, he's not he's not somebody that I have any problem with. Otherwise, he's been really cool to me, and I, 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 you know, I think he's a cool guy overall. But it just it just shows you like there's like a disconnect, and it's one that I really can't I can't meet it halfway, and it's like this guy, he got upset. This is something I saw online, but he was he's a guy I know and he was like like spin magazine or something or like circus magazine I don't know, some like one of those big guitar magazines or m- music magazines that i can't even believe exist anymore like those only existed so that kids could like cut out the pictures of the bands and put them on their wall i can't i just can't fathom that those exist anymore like we talked to Eddie Van Halen and he uses these kinds of pickups we asked him what his favorite guitar lick is. I guess I just can't imagine those seem so antiquated. Uh, But one of those came out and like some guy listed like his top 10 favorite drummers. And this guy I know was really upset that there were no black drummers because he's like, we owe everything to black drummers. Like we, we owe, we owe the entire like rhythm section to black people. And I was just like, man, you torture yourself. And you, in turn, like torture other people. I mean, I'm not not accusing this this particular guy of torturing anybody because it was just some opinion. We're all allowed to have our opinions, um, but it was just, I it was just like, man, that's twisted. It's just, I think it was even like rock drummers. I don't even think it was like just drummers. I think it was even like the top ten rock drummers, and it was just, and it was probably exactly who you'd expect. It's like. John Bonham <laughs> he's like John Bonham Neil Peart Bill Ward it's like just a, a list of like 10 classic rock rock drummers or something and this guy was like they don't have a single black artist on there we owe everything and so that's like the, what I, that's kind of what I'm getting at in a nutshell like and someone would hear me say that and be like oh so you don't think that they should have a black artist on there if one of your favorite drummers is black and you don't include them on purpose, like that's a little weird. Like if you're genuinely a fan of a drummer and it's you speaking for yourself, like, yeah, it's kind of weird if you wouldn't include them just for some reason, you know, whatever it is. But it's like just the idea though, that it's like, you see that somebody else made a list of their favorite things and you think they need to like honor a certain group when it's, it's, It's a, it's completely counter to the old liberal idea of like, Hey, we like what we like. Like you're not analyzing, like you're not strategic about your taste, but I've noticed more and more people are. I've noticed more and more that people are signaling something with their taste, which shouldn't be a surprise because that's what teenagers do. Like teenagers don't always truly like the music they listen to. They'll just be like, well, this makes me seem this way. Like, this makes me seem like I have this identity. Like, I, I don't really even know what's going on in Metallica. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't even know what's going on. Like, I mean, that's how I was when I was in, like... When I first, like, really decided that I liked music in, like, fourth grade, I would listen to CDs and I loved the music. Like, I had, like, the presidents of the United States. I got really into them. But if you were to ask me, like, what the bass is or, like, how this... like I, like i didn't know when a guitar riff began and ended like i didn't know what a chorus was like i just heard this like noise and it just sounded like one whole unit like it even went to like when i was a teenager going to shows for the first time i remember like going to some like punk hardcore show that i didn't like my friend because that was the thing too is like my friend was just like hey you want to go to this show tonight and i'm just like sure and you go, and it's like local hardcore and punk bands, and you don't like anything, but it's like a new experience. And like I remember, like watching this, like I feel like they were a pop punk band or something. And the guy was like five foot two, with like spiked up hair and a goatee. You know, he had a good look. He was like this little. You know what he looked like? He looked like um, what's his name? Uh, Al Bundy's son on Married with Children. I'm trying to think of that character's name. He looked exactly like that guy if if that show had been made a few years later, and he had like his hair short but spiked up like all those guys had. What's that character's name? I always liked that about Married with Children, how it's like this son just inexplicably has a goatee. There's probably an episode about it, but it'd be cool if they never mention it. It's just like our teenage son has has a goatee. Yeah. And I feel like I'm not, it's one of those things where I feel like I'm not going to remember his name. So I should just move on. But he looked like that guy and they were playing like some really monotonous sounding pop punk, which I would probably love today. (laughs) Uh, It was probably like just melodic enough, but like the monotony of it, like the ineptitude of it probably made it really good. But I remember like, anyway, I was watching it and I just remember being like, like my friend was a bass player. And and he, he, he like commented about the bass or something, which like every fucking musician has to do like, Oh, you you see what he's doing? You see what he, you see what he did? No. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Here I was talking, here I was saying like, Oh, when I talk, I mean, I'm not, I'm not friends with that guy anymore. I haven't spoken to him in years. Uh, I don't owe him respect on this show. But it'd be like, he's like watching like some like monotonous pop punk band and just like commenting about the bass tone or something. But I remember like him saying that. And I honestly couldn't even, I couldn't make any distinction between the instruments. Like, yeah, I know what the drums are, but in terms of like, but through the distortion and everything else, it's like, there's no way I even knew what the bass, what sound the bass was actually making. So it's like, you have that experience as a kid And like, you like it though. It's like, you know, something good is going on, but you just kind of hear this, this just, you're, you can't like really make anything distinct in your brain. It just sounds like this mass. And that's, that's the amazing thing about music is that it does that, that it does just end up sounding like this mass working together. Uh, You know, in case you didn't know, I do like music, you know, (laughs) but then there's stuff that like, I'll, I'll readily admit that I did where it's like, you know, I remember getting like a patch in the mail with like CDs I ordered, like it was through some distro and they sent me like patches. And I I was pretty young, you know, I was still in junior high, but like putting one of the patches on my sweatshirt, having never heard the band, you know, you do things like that. They're like little signals. And like when the more I look back on that I'm like, Oh, you know, it wasn't really even about, it's like, yeah, you're being a poser. Yeah. You're doing this. No, it's not cool. But it's at the same time. It's like you you kind of are just signaling something in general. It's like you're just kind of letting people know, like what sort of like where you're headed, like what sort of cause you're you're into, you know. And they don't know what it is, and that's even better, you know, in your mind. Um, so there's like that, and but then, you know, sometimes it's like people end up, you know, signaling something almost political, you know, by what they're into. And I mean, it's what Miles and I have talked about a lot, which is like when someone reveals their rap side. And like the reason I know about this is because I've like found myself doing this about various things where it's like, you're not somebody who's like openly into rap. Like you're not, you're not somebody who's always blasting rap and like letting everybody know that's what you're into. Like, let's say you're into something very niche. that's actually quite different, but it's like, you almost like turn, it's like, you like turn your hat sideways and like start talking any bonics to like let people know that like oh did you know well I actually am like way into this. I don't know. I mean I'm probably not explaining it properly, but it's like people like kind of reveal that they have a rap side because it's like a way of saying like oh, here's something you didn't know about me. Guys do this with girls a lot. Like like I knew a guy who was a bartender who was like who is you know has a rap side and he was trying to woo this girl who came into the bar like by playing rap music. It's like girls love rap music and girls all girls have a rap side. All girls have a rap side. It's a fact. They all have this side of them that like loves to dance when they hear a hip hop beat and like m- like sing along. Like like you'll be hanging out with a girl who like, you know, is into some, you know, weird thing and then it's like rihanna or something i don't know I don't, it's not rap but it's like something comes on like cardi b which I, i've never even heard but it's like something like that comes on and they know every lyric that's happened to me and it's kind of like that like all girls have a rap side some guys do and i think girls genuinely like it but it's like some guys will kind of use that to be like oh here's something different about me You know, and, and so that's kind of like almost a form of like this whole thing that I'm talking about of like signaling to somebody, like not using your taste just to seem cool, but it's like you're signaling something and it has some sort of like implication about you. And it's probably sounds like some insane conspiracy theory that my friends and I drafted up, but just pay attention. Once you see, once you notice it, you can't stop noticing it. And, uh, you know and, and and you know it's a form of that is like when people are like how come there's no black drummers on here because the guy's a freaking classic rock nerd the guy's a classic rock nerd and like you want you want to uh him to have like a token black drummer to to signify that he's acknowledging the fact that what like 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 I don't even know what he means by like acknowledging you know, the, the hist like how much we owe to you know black people for the rhythm section. I mean, yeah, like there've been a ton of black drummers and black bass players, and you can trace drums far back in history. But that's exactly what I mean, where it's like your taste is supposed to be honoring people, your taste is supposed to be signaling something. It's like your taste is supposed to be elevating a marginalized group. And is that why you like it? And people would say no, and I would say, then why do you have to frame it that way? Like, if if you like a black drummer, why do you have to frame it as like honoring the African tradition? <laughs> you know, like I I just I, I I there's a disconnect there. And the reason why I'm using this example is because it comes from a guy who I know to be smart, as you would expect. Like, I mean, it's a thing when people have opinions like that; they're usually not stupid. And and I don't believe people are stupid. I don't believe most of the people I know are stupid. I truly don't. And so, you know, that makes it that much more interesting, though, is that people who I don't think are stupid are doing something that I find really strange and disagreeable. And they're signaling something by doing that. Because you don't say that if you're not signaling something. And I'm not even getting into the whole virtue signaling thing because everybody virtue signals. Like if you see if you've ever seen like this new like like people who became quasi right wing 5 years ago and recently got baptized Catholics. Like if you've ever paid attention to those people on social media, they're constantly virtue signaling. They're constantly though these these new Christians who are who were atheists 10 years ago and you know Through some weird like esoteric meme culture, they became Christians, which God bless them, I guess, you know, I mean, I I have no problem with that. If that's the route you go, if if you actually got somewhere that's meaningful, God bless you, you know, but it's like if you actually pay attention to those people and I do because I find them fascinating, they're constantly virtue signaling and now they have this kind of like half Christian version of that. And they're just judging, you know? That's the funny thing. Like, I mean, yeah, like I, you know, I practice things. Like, I would say like my, you know, Buddhism informs a lot. And it intersects with other things as far as my life goes at this point. I'm not a Buddhist, but it's like that's a part of things. And it's like I do all kinds of things that those teachings would tell you not to because they're not my law. They're not my absolute law it's that's one placeholder for the thing that I'm accessing, and I happen to think that it explains it very well and gives you certain disciplines that enhance it, but I don't feel like I have to follow it. That said, if you read the precepts, which are very similar to the Ten Commandments, it's like a shorter version of the Ten Commandments, but they hit upon the same notes, and I think the Ten Commandments are great. If you're going to come up with a, a list of ten things, you know there, there might be a couple on there I don't like. But overall it's a pretty good list for every the, for everybody to read, you know. Like if if you're going to have <laughs> if you're going to have like a list of of 10 things that that are going to go out as guidelines to the most possible num- the biggest possible number of people, I feel like the 10 commandments are better than they are not, you know. I'd have to look back through them. I know there's probably some that somebody has some weird take on, or there's, there's one that's just become antiquated and weird. I don't know. I'd have to look back. I can't remember if there's anything that people consider offensive in the 10 commandments, but the, you know, the Buddhist precepts are basically a shorter list of that. And I don't find them disagreeable at all. But that said, I don't always follow them. Like one of them is no wrong speech. And that that's not anti-free speech. It, what it is, is it's not talking ill of somebody not saying something bad about somebody. And every time I do one of these episodes, I probably break that rule. That said, because it's a guideline that I try to follow, I follow it more often than I would otherwise. And I don't think about it. I'm not like, oh, there's a Buddhist precept. That's just a good idea in general. I mean, I listen to these mafia podcasts where this like former Lucchese member He's just always like, you know, can't be negative. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I'm not gonna talk about him, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna say anything negative. And even though that's kind of like a new agey, you know, wine mom sort of way of talking, like no negativity, you know, it's like that's the same thing. I mean, basically that's it means like don't gossip, don't talk about people behind their backs. And that's basically what wrong speech is. It's like things that and, and you know wrong speech because you feel it inside when you say it. Like I said something about somebody I know. It wasn't even like mean or bad, but it was kind of at their expense. I was telling somebody else about it. And I just, inside, I could just feel it inside. I could feel that I shouldn't have said that. And so you get those feelings. And the reality is you're going to say things like that, but it's just, it's just one of those things. But I get that same feeling though, when I'm like, pretending to do something just to signal something to somebody and you do it especially when you're trying to like attract women or when they're trying to attract you you say things that you know are bullshit like that guy that was talking about you know how come there's no black drummers? how can you make a list of the top 10 classic rock drummers and not have no black man on it you know it's like that guy's he was probably doing that for a girl you know, in this, you know, he was probably doing that for a girl. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm writing fan fiction at this point, but uh, it is that sort of thing where it's just kind of like, huh, like you know, I get that feeling when I say things like that. That's wrong speech to me. Like when I say things or I signal something that I don't actually believe in, but I want somebody to think I do because it will give me some sort of benefit, that is wrong fucking speech. That is a violation of one of the the five Buddhist precepts or four or however many it is. I don't even know how many it is. I think it's five. No, and that's, that's exactly what it is because all of those precepts are things that generally make you feel worse. And by, you know, meditating and clearing your mind and, and, you know, having a practice, not that you have to have that to feel this, but it's like you do kind of slow your thoughts down. You do kind of take greater control of your, of your environment, not even control of your environment. You get greater control of yourself and therefore are more of a participant in your, in your environment because you don't have thoughts and everything just spinning around you. You're not ruled by your emotions all the time. And it's an imperfect process because that's the whole idea. It's the most distant shore, which is that you have your eye on the most distant shore. But you're okay with not reaching it because you know that even just going in that direction at all is going to be better. That's why, you know, there's the quote that I love, um, which is, you know, just anyone who practices Zen meditation once wipes away beginningless crimes and that's, there's also a theme of that in the Tibetan book of the dead where it talks about you know how even if you try this practice just like once like even if you just do this for a second basically i mean it doesn't actually say that the Tibetan book of the says <laughs> the Tibetan book of the dead says if you do this for one second no it, it it basically says like even if you don't commit to this the fact that you even tried it at all is going to assist your soul you know after it leaves the body, like it's going to be more ready. It's going to be less shocked. I mean, the Tibetan book of the dead deals with that, where it's like, you're going to be in in for less of a shock when you no longer have a body. If you even just try this once, you're going to be more prepared. So it's like, that's the sort of idea that I'm getting at where it's, it's like, even just trying it all. And that's the guideline idea too. Like when I say something is it might not be a rule where if you break it, you're screwed, but it's something that if you follow it, you're less likely to go too far and veer you know you're less likely to to veer too far in the other direction in the wrong direction if you stick to that guideline but these precepts they're all things that you can feel, and you know that, that idea of like wiping away beginningless crimes I don't know it's it's like it's almost like uh. Either way, you're gonna you're gonna be moving closer to the right direction, if not in the right direction, if you follow these. And <laughs> I was talking about taste and like people making top ten lists of classic drummers, but this is the best. This is what I live for is to is to just spiral into it. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> it, but what I was getting at, I, I know, I know the connection point for once I can trace back like the connection point of these two different rants. And that's that you feel it when you violate one of those. It's not that it's an intellectual thing. I mean, that's the difference between like the, the, the lowercase G Gnostic experience and Christian Christianity, Christianity, <laughs> Christianity, <laughs> um, no, but like that's that's like the more than the experiential knowledge, the mystical Christian knowledge rather than the intellectual. And that's what people struggle with. Like that's why kids who grew up in Christian households, they're having it intellectually hammered home. Like even though it's not being taught academically, even though Christianity is being taught to them as this religious mystical interaction they have with the world, they're not necessarily experiencing that. Whereas, like, when you have that gnostic experience, when you gain that experiential knowledge, you say, "Oh, I don't have a choice." Like, when you have that, you're you you end up thinking, like, "Oh, I don't I don't actually have a choice as to whether or not this is relevant to me. It simply is." But hopefully, you can integrate integrate integrate. It's late. Um, I don't feel any dread anymore. I'm not feeling very dreadful right now. That's good. No, but you can like. When you, when you practice that, I mean, that's what I'm getting at is that word practice. And there's a reason why that's used. When you practice that, like you you end up integrating it in with the whole. Like you end up integrating that in with your whole life. And you don't have to be that person who's doing what I'm doing now. Who's like signaling that you're into spirituality. Because you know what? When you signal that you're into spirituality or you signal that you're religious. I mean, there's a reason why I brought up like these new Catholics who are suddenly like, did you know I'm Catholic? You know, the reason why I'm bringing that up is because you signal. And it's hard not to do that when something is new to you. It's really difficult. Like, you know, when, when I got into running, you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to tell everybody, you know, you should run. You ever thought about running? It, feel, it feels great. You know, you, you want to kind of preach. When something is new to you, you want to spread it, but you don't even understand it yet. And it's the same thing, like, like when I first started meditating, and I didn't really know w- what it was going to be, but I was starting to have breakthroughs with it. I wanted to be like, hey, you ever heard of meditation? You, know, you, you want to make these recommendations. You do the same thing with a restaurant you like. You know, it's just what we do, especially when something's new to you, you do it. And it's okay to be excited, but it's often when you're excited and not thinking. I mean, this is why Buddhism, for example emphasizes neutrality like you don't want to be attached to your excitement just like you don't want to be attached to your dread like I'm I'm cool with going back to dread tonight before I go to bed I'm, I'm okay with that even though I'm excited right now I can't be attached to this excitement because then I'm going to feel even shittier when the excitement inevitably goes away and if I'm attached to my dread well that speaks for itself if I'm attached to my dread then I'm going to hold on to my dread. And guess what? When you hold on to your negative feelings, they hold on really hard. They say, oh, you're holding on to me? Well, I'm going to, oh, here, let me support you. I'll grab your ankles. You know, so it's like you don't want to be attached to your negative feelings for obvious reasons because you will not be looking for positive experiences. You will not be looking for opportunities, which is why when I used to define myself On my cynicism, when I used to define my personality by the fact that, oh, I'm a curmudgeon, I'm 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 a cynical curmudgeon. You know, when I used to see myself that way and frame my life that way, I wasn't even looking for opportunities. Like, yeah, I was still working hard. Yeah, I was still like interested in things, but I wasn't looking for opportunities for new insight for one And you can see where people who never looked for any opportunities, who never rebelled against themselves, you know, people who never rebelled against who they thought they were end up staying that way forever or getting worse. But but you don't want to... And that's what the rap side thing is. Like, I know this sounds probably completely insane now, but, like, when someone's like, oh, hey, you know, uh... Uh, I, I, I'm i into uh, experimental music and, and heavy metals. And I'm into uh, post-punk. But, do did, did you hear the new Cardi B, man? Fucking fire, right, bruh? You know, it's like when someone pulls that shit, they're kind of rebelling against themselves, but they're doing it for other people. Like, when you do that, like, when you kind of rebel against, like, being a one-dimensional person, but you're doing it so that you're so that it's like a show for other people to see. Oh, he's not one-dimensional. That's not the same thing that I'm talking about. Like maybe you need to do that. And if you're into fucking rap, like you're into rap, I'm not saying you shouldn't be. I'm not. I'm not saying every single person who's into rap or every single unexpected person who's also a rap fan is this. I'm just saying that this is a type of person that I've observed, and I'm right. That's what I'm saying. Um, But no, like, the internal rebellion is like, you have to recognize, like, what's that identity that I think I am that is unchangeable? And I kind of pride myself on it. Like, if I, oh, you know, it's like the person, the sort of person who's like, if you ever mess with my family. Like, the person who comes with these, like, preloaded confrontational things, like, I'm from the school of hard knocks. And if you ever mess with my family, and it's like, I've never even talked about your family. And they're like, yeah, but I'm just saying, a real friend will help you. Or a friend will help you, but a real friend will help you bury a body. Like, there's people, there's like 50-year-old men who post that kind of shit on Facebook. And it's like, just, oh, you're trying to tell everybody you're a tough guy. I would say to that person, like, try not being that. Because you think that that's you, but try not being that. Like, rebel against that. Rebel against that part of you that feels the need to broadcast the fact that, like, if you ever talk about my family, I'm going to fucking kick your ass. You know, like, rebel against that. If you you go into situations like a preloaded confrontational attitude, go against it. And if it's like an aesthetic thing, like that, that sort of person doesn't even know what that word means. They're not stupid. They just don't care. Um, they don't care what aesthetic means. Those people could learn the word aesthetic. They could learn big words. They just don't care. Um, but, uh, <laughs> no, it, it's, it's like you need to rebel against that part of you, especially if it's something negative. Like if you feel good, if you feel one with existence you don't need to do anything i'm saying because you were either born that way or you figured it out somehow or just fell into the right groove but it's like i know so many freaking people who are twisted up inside and they are looking for all these weird solutions and you know I, i don't the difference with me is i was twisted up inside in the past But I really wasn't even looking for solutions. I was kind of just dead set on the fact that that's who I am. But I do know a lot of people who know they're twisted up inside. And they're kind of trying to find other solutions. And those are the people also, though, who end up, like, getting sucked into this narrative-driven idea. Like, they're the people who are, like, they think that if they support the right politics, they think that if they devote themselves to the right public causes. And I I don't even mean in any kind of substantial way, like they're actually even doing anything. It's again, just that signaling thing. It's like they they go looking in those places or they go looking to change themselves superficially. They get a new tattoo. You know, it's like they're looking for some kind And I'm not saying that people who get tattoos are just twisted up, like looking for a solution. As I've said before, I think tattoos look cool. I, I don't have one and I'll never get one, but... I, I think they're cool looking. I under, I get it. I get tattoos. I don't... I would never... I, I'm not some pseudo-reactionary who's like, Dude, tattoos are fucking stupid. Like, yeah, it's kind of silly that every person has one now. But I don't think tattoos themselves are inherently uncool. And I get it. Um, but, uh, you know, it's like people do all these superficial they'll they'll change themselves they'll modify themselves in these superficial ways and maybe i just don't have the right words to explain it but it's all like the way that i always explain it is just like rebelling against that part of yourself that like thinks you know who you are and i would tell and and the reason why i say that is because that's exactly what i had to do and i'm still doing it and then you rebel against that and you go back to your old self at times but you know it you know and it's it's that sort of like process of catabasis and anabasis like you descend down and then you ascend again but that's exactly it like the whole idea of like not being attached to negativity but also not being attached to positivity is that you descend down into the underworld you know the catabasis idea but you're not attached to being down there and by not being attached to being down there, you notice when the slope is ascending and you keep going, or you notice when there's an opportunity to get out. Uh, and there's a reason why that theme is so common, of course. And there's a reason why that comes up everywhere. There's a reason why everybody talks about it. There's a reason why you know, some of the most famous psychologists and philosophers use that exact example and why I can't come up with a better one. You know, it's that's probably the best example that there is. But the sort of Buddhist attitude toward it is to be aware of the fact by clearing your mind, by meditating, by having some kind of practice, and it doesn't have to be strict. Again, it's just that thing that if you even move in the right direction at all, if you even do it once, you're better off. You know, it's almost like the idea of like if you do one push up a week. You're better off for having done that one push-up. You'll probably end up wanting to do more. And, that, and, and somebody who's like stuck in the world of fitness would be like, it's, it's not going to give you any gains, dude. It's not going to give you any gains if you do only one push-up a week. Well, it's not even about that. It's about the discipline. Like if you can remember to do one push-up a week and you do it every week, even on the same day, that's a discipline that's like meditation. That's, you know, that's like you're sitting down and you're doing something very specific. And in a way it's like, you know, I do tons of push-ups, Okay. But in a way, like doing that one push-up is almost more impressive to me because there's no ego. There's no, you're not trying to look buff. You're not trying to like gain strength. Like if you, it's just, I love that like sort of pure commitment. And I've never even heard of anybody doing that. I'm just I'm just saying that it's like, one, you're going to be better off for having done that. Even though it's not going to be obvious, even though you're not going to be buff, it, it'll probably get easier eventually, I imagine. And, th- and a lot of things get easier once you know you can do them. And using push-ups as an example, like, I do a lot of push-ups and, like, sometimes I'll space them out. And for a while, I would, like, take fairly long breaks between sets. Like, I would do, like, 25 and then, like, wait a few minutes but sometimes I'll be like, you know what, I'm going to like do 25 push-ups, then do 25 sit-ups, and then I'm going to I'm gonna immediately do 25 push-ups again and, and do that until I, you know, obviously I'll have to rest at some point, but do that until I meet the number that I want to get to. And you surprise yourself because you'll be like, oh, wow, like I thought that I had to rest. I didn't realize I could do that. And you don't want to hurt yourself or anything like that. But it's like when you push yourself further, you end up going, oh, I didn't even know that I could do that. And that makes it easier the next time you do it. But that idea of just having like some sort of practice, you know, meditation in particular is a eons old practice because it specifically settles your thoughts. And that's not all it does, but if nothing else, I can promise that it settles your thoughts if you do it regularly, even just sitting down and doing it when you don't feel like it, not getting to the place you want. Again, you're better off for even having done that. Like Sometimes that's actually the real value for me, is that sometimes I will wake up, I overate the night before, I overindulged. Probably violated a precept there, but I will say like binge eat, I wake up, I feel awful. And you really understand the relationship between your mind and food, between your spirit and food, if you've meditated on a completely full stomach, or you've tried to meditate after like overeating something really shitty, you're just going to be thinking about your stomach the entire time. You're going to be feeling your stomach process what you just did to it. And your brain isn't going to do much. yeah, of course, you know, some, you know, you can, you can do it, but it's like, for the most part, like, I find that to be a really disgusting, self-loathing experience to try to meditate on a full stomach, which is why monks fast, but it's, it's practical too. It's not like just self-torture, like monks don't fast for meditation just to be like, I'm going to make this as uncomfortable as possible. It has an actual, I don't know whether to call it cognitive. I mean, I feel like it, these words are placeholders and it, it transcends all of these words that you could possibly use for it but let's just say like going to a certain place you know if you're if you're on a full stomach it's it's at the very least more difficult and you think about you go through your life doing that like you go through your life stuffing your stomach sometimes and if you pay attention if you clear your thoughts you'll realize that you're not thinking as clearly when you're doing that and, you know, you just try it. Like, try intermittent fasting. Like, that's one thing. It, it's not even about losing weight because I hate that whole way of thinking. Like, I don't think being fat is good for you. But it's like I also hate the the focus on, like, pounds. I don't like the measurement. That's that's what I'm getting at. It's not about, like, like I, wa- I don't, I don't want to be fat. I was fat for long enough. I, and I wouldn't, and I'll say that I don't want to be fat again. Um. If it happens, it happens. But you know, I, I don't I I wouldn't prefer that, I'll tell you that. And that does motivate me to to stay fit. But part of that is just there's kind of a cognitive aspect to it as well, where it's like I don't think as clearly like if I've been eating too much for days on end, like if I'm smoking weed and I and I just eat every night way too much and I'm still working out. It's not like I'm putting on pounds, but even just that process of like making my body digest food and digest lots of it. And I I don't, this is a non-biological show, you know, so I don't want to go too far here. But I find that my cognitive ability is worse. And because I view meditation as a spiritual practice... I would say that my spirit is worse off for being in a body that is like completely stuffed itself. And it's not pleasurable. It's, you know, it's, it's the, you know, the law of uh, not diminishing returns. I mean, I guess kind of, but it's like you're you're less satisfied with the food you're eating the more you eat. I mean, there's a reason why ice cream is exciting when you first open it up. But when you're getting the second pint out, <laughs> you're, you're, you're a little bit less excited, but you're just sort of involuntarily consuming it. But no, like intermittent fasting, like if I'm on a good fasting schedule and I highly recommend it, like, that's what I was going to say is like, it doesn't matter if you, it doesn't matter if your goal is to lose weight or not, just simply being able to do that. Cause I never even imagined that that was possible. Like my whole life, like even after I lost a bunch of weight, you know, when I was an adult and everything, you know, um, when I was around like 20, 21 is when I dropped a ton of weight during that period. And like even, you know, after that though, um, you know, I, I never really considered the fact that like I didn't have to eat first thing in the morning. And I always thought and I would get headaches too. You know, I would get these these headaches if I didn't eat after a certain amount of time. And sometimes I still do if I fast for too long. But but still, it's 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 this thing though where it's like you don't even realize you can do that. It's like I was talking about with like push-ups. It's like, oh, you know, I I've conditioned myself into thinking that after I do 25 push-ups in a row, I have to take a breather and do 25 more. And I do them all the way down. I do I do uh I don't make pushups easy for myself. But like once you realize that you can just do those in a row, once you realize that you don't need as much rest time, you stop thinking about it and you just do it and it's easier. You condition yourself into thinking that, oh, I can do this more quickly. I can do this faster. But you have to do that first. I mean, it's the same thing with running. Like, oh, I don't think that I can run for an hour. And so one day you keep running and then you, you run for an hour and it's, it might seem like a lot, it might not, but you know, you can do it next time. And so like a lot of it is just kind of, it's, it's the, it's when people say it's all in your mind, that's what they're talking about. I sound incredibly manic, which I'm not, this is what happens. I, I do have a vape and this it's a red bang. It's that Red Bull flavored vape, which I've been doing a lot of, but. not a yeah my my precept um radar tells me not to use this but that's the thing you know sometimes you got to pick and choose your vices sometimes you you gotta here's here's what I'll say I know that I'm I, I'm probably incredibly off out of focus and off topic I recommend intermittent fasting I recommend learning how to do that that's I want to finish that thought like if you can learn that you can go 16 to 18 hours sometimes, 14, I think 14 is like the ultimate number I go for. Like unless I've really, like if I binge ate the night before, I will go all day. I will go until, not just until I'm hungry, until I can tell that my body is No longer processing anything until I know that my stomach has recovered like I will go 20 hours if I ate too much the night before but 14 is a very reasonable goal 12 is okay but it's it's not really intermittent fasting I feel like at that point uh, but and, and the thing is too, this includes sleep it's not like you have to go all day without eating If you sleep eight hours, that's a big chunk of the time. That's like half the time if you're going to fast for 16 hours. And that just means four hours, give yourself four hours after eating the night before and give yourself four hours in the morning. It's not actually that hard to do once you start doing it. But I remember hearing about it. Like I, I, you know, when I was getting into fitness and stuff, I just kept hearing people talk about it. And the word fasting freaked me out. Because I used to work with these Muslim guys who would fast for Ramadan, and it meant you couldn't eat when the sun was out, and so like I had that in my head, and I and I also also had these extreme examples of monks in my head who fast for days. So to me, like fasting was starving yourself. I didn't realize it was just getting your desired calories, which I don't count, but I didn't realize it was like getting all the food you need within you know an eight-hour window of time while you're awake, and being conscious of the the time when you last ate, and being conscious of the time when you eat next. And it doesn't have to be an exact science, even though people are psychos about it. But it's just a good practice to have if you if you haven't done it. And I would say it's not about even losing weight, even though it's good for fitness. It's also about your cognitive ability. Like if you fast, and you get used to it, And you're not waking up like starving because guess what? Your stomach starts to learn. In the same way that like you as an organism, like if you get fed every day, like if you're in prison and you get fed at the same time every day, I've never been to prison, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. But if you get fed at the same time every day, it's like your body expects it at that time. It's like how your dog or an animal also will come to expect that it gets fed at a certain time of day. It has an internal clock, and when you fast and you're, you you keep with a pretty steady rhythm, your stomach might grumble more because it's used to eating right when you wake up. You know that might happen, but you're going to notice that after a little while, your stomach starts, your stomach stops making demands. And then when it's really hungry, it, you'll know. You'll know, okay, you know what? I really have to eat. Or sometimes it's like if you know you're going to have to do something, but you're not going to be able to eat at the time that you should, you just end up eating anyway. You eat in the morning, like you break your fast. Like it's not like you have to be a psycho about it. Again, it's it's that guideline. Like the thing cuz like the thing is about the precepts. When I say like it's a guideline, like when people hear somebody say guideline, they think Oh well, that means it's something that you only loosely follow and you're noncommittal. Since when? Like since when is a guideline something that you are supposed to be noncommittal about? But the thing is, you will be noncommittal about a guideline unless you form a discipline around it. Like I, I spoke on this show, I was saying that I was trying to swear less. And I decided to make an effort. Like on this show, I would chastise myself. And I know I still swear. You'll hear me swear. It's not like I'll stop swearing. But I have noticed in my life that I swear significantly less than I did even a year ago. And you know what? I started to feel that feeling that I'm talking about. Like when I would swear, it's not that I felt it was morally wrong. I think those words are cool. But I started to get that feeling like intuitively saying you don't need this to make your point. You're kind of, you're, you're signaling something. I mean, that's kind of what you, you do when you swear too much. And I think this has been in my head for a long time because I had this class in college and we would break off into these little groups that they called seminar seminar, the seminary. No, this is seminar. And I had this girl in my class and she was like one, she, she was, her and her sister were lesbian twins Like they weren't involved with each other, but they both had short hair. They were the predecessor of, you know, gender neutral. It's like it's like they they were they were like probably just getting on board with that. And they they grew up in a small town. You knew exactly what this girl was gonna say. Like they had these port protests down here. They were there. She got pepper sprayed her badge of honor that she's never going to shut up about, you know, she, she was really obnoxious, but I also empathized with her because it was, everybody would kind of roll their eyes. Cause like she realized that you could swear in college and not just in college, but this liberal arts college, like she realized that like her professors weren't going to get mad at her and she would have an opinion about everything. And she always dropped what they call F-bombs what you call f-bombs but everything she said was like yeah well i think what like even if we were talking about a book this is see this is like y- you would cringe inside because like you'd be talking about a book you had to read for class and she'd be like well yeah you know i i think what he was fucking saying and she didn't even place her fucks very well i really i'm judging her like i i'm i can feel that feeling inside that i shouldn't be talking about her but she's an example it's a she's a parable. She's a parable in my story. Oh, do you know you're a parable in my story? Did you know that I'm still talking about you 15 years later? Uh, <laughs> hey, hey, do you know that I really, I remember you and I, I, I talk about you? Um, no, I, I never forgot it though because she swore so much. And it was so obvious that she was trying to signal like that she was cool and that she's in college. This ain't high school where they're going to send you to the principal's office for, for dropping those F-bombs. You're in you're in liberal arts college, and you can... And, and my professor, too, he was great. I love that guy. He was like this... He looked like a... Like, if Anderson Cooper was, like, complete... He probably didn't look shit like Anderson Cooper, but I think it's because he's gay. He was gay, and that made me think of Anderson Cooper. But, no, he kind of looked like... He, he had the same vibe as Anderson Cooper. Like, he would wear these, like, really nice, like, news anchor suits... And he had like a completely bald head, like, a comp- like no eyebrows. Like he looked, he would make a good villain or something, but he was, he was a really good guy. Like I enjoyed his classes and uh, it, it reached a point where he would just like roll his eyes and just go, tch, tch. you know, cause she would say this so often and it's like, I, I kind of think about her when I do that. <laughs> like, like when I swear, when I don't need to, I kind of think about her and it's, and like that feeling inside doesn't come from the fact that she did that, but it's like for the same reason that when she did that, everybody in the room, including my bald super vil- gay supervillain professor, like the reason why, why like everybody went is because like, we all felt that inside, but we also feel that when we do those things and that's a kind of a signal to do it less. And you you develop a discipline around it, and you have to develop a discipline around it. You have to remind yourself several times. Like my dog Batty, he learns things on the third time. He needs two times. I, I this has happened with a bunch of things. Like for a while, I felt like he wasn't respecting my dominance, and I kind of thought we had a, a household where we were equals. You know, which we are, but. I, I just found out that I have a dog and I'm new to owning a dog and I just, I kind of have to assert a little more dominance. And so I would make him wait longer. If I gave him meat, I would be like, sit. And then he was used to me just putting it down as soon as he sits, but I, he would start to go for it and I would wait five seconds and I would tell him to sit. If he tried to go for it, I would make him sit again. And on the third time, he knew that there's an extra waiting period. And you can do that for yourself. Like you, if you remind yourself not to swear, you will eventually swear less. And I'm glad that I still swear. I'm glad that... Because because that'd be a whole other signal. Like if I decided that I was never going to swear and swearing was evil, that would be me doing a whole... It would be me doing the same thing on the other end of the spectrum. So it's like... But, th- but I, I wanted to swear less. When I swore, I reminded myself... I gave myself a little lashing. I gave my—I physically took a whip, and it was long enough that I could just like fling it up, and it would whip my own back. I would flagellate myself. Um, but uh, you know, and I managed to do less of it. But I don't want to stop doing it entirely. But that's a guideline. Like I, it's—it's it's funny that like we hear rule and we think, oh, it has to be followed, but we hear guideline and we're like oh, it's something I don't really need to care about. But it's like guidelines are the best, but they also require, you have to install guidelines with a sense of discipline. And so I guess like the the real, the weird one, Uh, (laughs) I guess like like the bigger theme of what I'm talking about because I've talked about discipline a ton on here, but the, the bigger theme of what I'm talking about here is like when you get that feeling inside, you you kind of have to listen to it, and it's good. And sometimes it's good to get that feeling. Like sometimes it's good to say the wrong thing. Sometimes it's good to engage in what the Buddhists call wrong speech. Because you remind yourself what it feels like, and you know what we're fucking human beings, and that's the whole concept behind the most distant shore is that you won't get there. And if you do, well, great. That's liberation, maybe. That's heaven. If you actually get there, you're in Valhalla. Nobody's ever complained about making it. <laughs> you know. Nobody's ever complained about the fact that they actually made it to the most distant shore. But you know what? People who, who went in that direction and didn't make it will tell you they're better off for it. And that's the other thing to listen to. It's not just that you. It's not just that you shouldn't. Um, like it, it's not only that. Like when you do things that give you that kind of like, it feels like your stomach clenches. Like something inside makes you feel like, oh, I shouldn't have said that, or I shouldn't do that. Like in the same way that you have to respond to that, you have to respond like to when something feels like something you should do. And that can be harder that's going with the grain and I'm doing that right now I kind of put a lot of my extracurricular activities so so to speak on hold because something finally just clicked and I needed to work on something and it really does feel like going with the grain. It feels like something that I was meant to do, whatever comes of it, it feels like something that I was meant to do for a while, but also that now is the right time. Because I said to myself, just like yesterday, I was like, oh, you know, it would have been cool if I started this a while back. But I thought about like some of the components that went into it, and I was like, well, it wouldn't be this. If I'd started this a while back, it wouldn't be this, and I know I'm speaking vaguely, I'll, I'll talk about it eventually, but it wouldn't be this. And I feel the same way. I mean, I've said the same thing to myself about fitness. I mean, what I'm talking about is a, a project, but um, it, it's the same thing with fitness too, where it's like I've said to myself before, like, oh, you know, when I got in shape when I was 20, 21, why didn't I take it to this level then? Why didn't I lift weights then? You know, why didn't I go that next step further? And it's like, well, first of all, like getting into fitness in the last five or six years, five years, you know, actually devoting myself to it more and more. It wouldn't be the same though. It's like the fact that the the story has contrast to it. Like the, the, the fact that like it's more important now because it was something that I picked up on later. Like, it wouldn't be what it is now. It wouldn't mean as much to me now if it was something that I started doing when I was 20, when it was easier. And when, you know, because it's like, I, like, and that's pure ego. Because you know what? Whenever I think, like, why didn't I start doing this when I was 20? It's because I think, like, oh, I would have, this would have happened. And, oh, my body would have responded to it better, so my muscles would have gotten bigger, faster. I would be in even better shape. That's pure ego. And most of the time when you're like looking at the past saying like, why didn't I do that then? It's just, it's pure self-interest. And it distracts from the interest you should have in yourself right now. And people want like these calm voice people to talk about these things. And that has its place, but that's a fetish. Like I like, you know, like Eckhart Tolle is a, a very famous mindfulness guy and on one level he's everything that I'm not interested in on another level everything he says is right I mean I've, I've watched I've never read his books but I've I've watched interviews and, and lectures you know I, I've I've really checked out a broad assortment of people and I so I naturally I decided to check him out at one point and it's like I didn't watch Eckhart Tolle and say like oh there's my guy Oh there's my guy oh, I found the guy. I found the guy that I'm gonna listen to, you know, but I did listen to what he had to say and was like, what he's saying is good with a guy like that though there's like there's a fetish to it for people. It's like, oh, he's talking about mindfulness a very calm voice like I wouldn't even be able to do his voice, but he's so calm that it's almost i like I like a little bit of drama. You know, I, you know that's why it's like I would veer towards someone like Alan Watts because it's like, there even though he's this very controlled speaker, I like that he cuts you. Like if you listen to Alan Watts, like there are moments where he just cuts right to the bone, and he does it in a way that isn't mean spirited. He doesn't. He does it in a way that's harsh. In the same way that seeing yourself in a harsh light is harsh. It's harsh in the same way that seeing a har- seeing yourself under a harsh light is harsh. No, it's it's harsh in that sense. It's not harsh in a mean way. He's not barking at you. He's just cutting right to the bone. He's getting to the point. And so I like things like that. I like things that you know have those dynamics to them. I don't mind if someone's just yelling. I mean, I like that Southern Baptist fire and brimstone style. I, I genuinely do. And I, and I respect that some people especially like women who watch Oprah like hearing this little man just talks about how if you sit you know it, you know it's that it has its purpose like it takes all types and I would never say that you know that's the wrong approach or anything like that but it's a, it's kind of a fetish it's like I'm listening to a a calm guy teach me how to be calm. I'm the kind of person where it's like, I want to (laughs) hear, I want to hear somebody on fire. I want to hear someone who is the human inferno telling me to be calm. You know, that's my style. You know, not, you know, I, I don't know. I can't think of anybody who's like that, but I do enjoy that. I, I guess I like a certain volume and intensity. I, like, I guess I, it's just a dynamic. You know, like George Carlin talks about speaking, like not just comedy, but like I saw an interview with him where he was talking about just like performing and like just the song of speech, like the rhythm of your speech when you're up there telling jokes. So that's almost the entire thing like the punctuation of your voice, like maybe what I'm even doing here. But, you know, part of it is that like what you're drawn to is, isn't even necessarily the words. It's like the, the mountain, you know, it's like the mountain range of what, uh, you know. But he said that and I was like, oh yeah, of course. Of course that's what we're drawn to. And it's not that we're not hearing the words because the words are great. But it's like, that's what makes points. The delivery is often everything. And that's what was missing for me from the things, like, I wouldn't, you know, here's the thing. I can say now that I checked out Eckhart Tolle and I thought, this is good stuff. Hey, this is good stuff. You know, I did. I I thought, hey, this is good stuff. People are better off for hearing this is how I felt. I saw it on that simple of a level. People are better off for hearing this. Even if they don't practice it, the fact that they heard this, the fact that they did one push-up a week, that's what I'm talking about. Like the fact that you, the fact that some lady watched Oprah and thought, hey, I like this calm little sage talking about how to be mindful and calm. The fact that they even saw that once that, and, they, and they responded to it, that's good. But um, for me, though, it's like, that's also like what, like I, in in 2010, for that matter, like in 2010, I would not have sat there and listened to an Eckhart Tolle interview. I just wouldn't have. I would have thought, it doesn't even make a difference to me what he's saying. I'm not drawn to this, this fetish. And you come across that fetish a lot in Buddhism, where it's like, there's a certain sort of Buddhism, there's a certain sort of culture around it, especially in the West, maybe primarily in the West, where it's this sort of fetish for, like, calmness, and you can see where people decorate themselves accordingly. Like, they like to look like a Buddhist. They like to signal that that's what they're into, and I have no problem with that. Again, they're probably better off for that, even if they're hypocritical. Even if it really is just about the the social aspects of being a calm person around calm people, that's not a terrible decision. You know, wear your beads, sit on your pillow, do what you want. You're probably better off for it, honestly. But that never would have drawn me in. I had to find even the and, I, and the, even that has an appeal to me. It's not like I would completely throw that away, but it's like it had to appeal to me in the most roundabout way possible because I couldn't have gotten into that idea on its own from the place I started at. And that's exactly the idea is that it's like you're the place where other people are entering isn't necessarily the place you're at. And for me, I always try to look for my own entrance. I try to enter through the exit where it's like, oh, well, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna come to the conclusion and go in that way. And then work my way backward or, or, or work my way in a half circle around. And then I'm gonna end up back on the path that everybody was on to begin with. But I had to go this roundabout way. But that's the exact thing that I was talking about when I said it's more valuable to you now like even if you take this roundabout way one you know you might experience unique things you might experience valuable things by taking that long route or taking that roundabout way or working backward you might very well experience the things that you needed to experience or just things that are cool it doesn't even have to be about like super ultra meaningful experiences it's just like interesting cool things happened because i took an alternative route but sometimes you have to learn to take like ...the same route everybody's taking... ...sometimes you have to wait in line... ...like if you're going to the airport... ...you can't just be like... ...oh well, I thought I'd just get right on the plane from... ...the parking lot... ...you have to go through the process... ...and sometimes you really do have to go through that process... ...just like you would wait in an airport... ...hey listen I don't wait in airports... ...oh if you ever talk about my family... ...you you don't want to be that person in an airport... Those people get thrown out of airports. Um, but some things you can do that with. And I had to do that with some of this stuff, whatever you want to call it, whether you call it spirituality, whether you call it whatever, whatever name you want to give it, it doesn't make a difference to me. And uh, I kind of had to work backward. I kind of had to work in weird zigzags, roundabout ways. And sometimes I'll say, look, well, like, why didn't I just get into that to begin with? Why didn't I just follow the process that you're supposed to follow to begin with? And I'd say, well, I wouldn't appreciate it as much as I do now. Like if I had just gone in through the front entrance, I would probably be better off than I would be otherwise, but I don't know that I would really value it as much. The fact that I tried to find my own way and maybe wasn't even trying to go to that place. Maybe I was trying to avoid that place, but the fact that I ended up there anyway makes it more valuable to me because it tells me that, oh, I tried to go somewhere else or I tried to find my way in, but I ended up where everybody else was and that rules. Am I there? Probably not. But when I do have those experiences, I don't reject it. The fact that I had to like, take some roundabout trip where I, where I looked at everything and paid attention to everything on the off chance that that could be the thing that brought me to the next place. I feel better off for that, knowing, and that's me personally, like that's how I work. But it's like I couldn't have been somebody who was like, oh, well, I got into mindfulness through Eckhart Tolle. And now I, I'm going to the Buddhist store to buy a pillow and beads. And people have given me beads. Buddhist friends have given me beads and stuff, and I cherish them. I think it's great. If somebody gave me a Bible, I'd cherish that, you know, if they were coming from the right place. It's not that I would seek beads out on my own. The Bible is different; that's a text. But um, you know, something that's more decorative. If somebody gives it to me, and and I feel that it's coming from a pure place, and nobody's ever not been coming from a pure place, as far as I know, <laughs> uh, I it's all about perception too. But I'll take it and I'll value it. But I wouldn't have sought it out on my own, and that makes it better. In the same way that not seeking out a certain destination, and maybe even trying to avoid that destination, but ending up there anyway. That's kind of the same thing in its own way. But people tell you, Oh, your top ten list didn't have this. I I couldn't help but notice that your top ten list didn't have this you didn't you didn't include this group how come your taste doesn't include things that you don't have taste in how come the list of things you like doesn't include things you don't like or you don't care about or that you just didn't make the cut because that's kind of where people's brains are at where it's like they're basically telling you how come you don't like the things that you just don't naturally like and that you know that's in large part I mean that happens all the time but it's a product of this ultra politicization it's this distorted empathy it's strange it's it's been bizarre to witness how deep it goes and we can see it now i mean the other day my friend sent me a link i'm not checking anything but he sent me a text message with like a news article and there in kirk corbrain kirk corbrain's hometown of aberdeen there's a star wars store that i've gone to as long as i've lived here like i had a girlfriend who loved star wars and we would when we'd go to the ocean we'd stop by the star star wars store and it's this little madman runs it. He's like this old man and he's a complete madman cuz it's the Star Wars store, but it's a junk store. Like I was saying to my friend, it's it's more like a like a, it's like a junk shop you would see in Star Wars. There's just like piles of action figures. There's there's stuff behind glass cases, but it's not it's not a collector store. Even though this guy has tons of valuable stuff, it's just kind of junked around and in the back corner he has a table that has a like a a vcr that's built into a little tv and it's playing this grainy like staticky vhs tape of a kirk corbrain documentary kirk corbrain documentary it's just playing because he's from aberdeen and that's their claim to fame now Uh, the pro wrestler daniel bryan's also from aberdeen You don't see people uh, (laughs) showing documentaries of him in the Star Wars store. But uh, so this guy has like a table in the back. And it's like one of those, it's like a, what do you call those? It's, It's like the same, speaking of pro wrestling, it's like one of the tables that they break. It's one of those types of tables that you can fold up, I guess a folding table. But it's like one of those long folding tables. And it's covered in little tiny jars of dirt, like little bottles of dirt. And it says Dirt from the Wishkaw River, which the Wishkaw River runs through Aberdeen. And I, I think Nirvana has a song either called that or a lyric. I'm not a Nirvana guy, so I don't I don't really know. But yeah, he has he sells dirt from the Wishkaw River as this sort of like Nirvana merch. But he's not a, you know, he's a weird guy, but he's not like because you'll go in there, and like my girlfriend many years ago was really into Star Wars and <laughs> She would like want to buy something and he would, it didn't matter what day you went, he will go, oh, did you know today's half off? Did you know today's 99% off? He was like that. Like he would just be like, oh, well, did you want this too? He's this very eccentric little guy named Don with two N's. But anyway, my friend sent me this link and it was like, well, here, let me just say this too. Uh, Please let me talk. I haven't talked enough. But he, he had this photograph of himself, because there's stuff all over. Like it's truly like a living collage. Like it is not a sterile collector store. It's like photos of him on the wall with like Princess Leia cosplayers. It's just everything. It's just like this like photo collage. There's like Polaroids on the wall. You know, it's really just like this this beautiful mess. Of some guy whose like sons were really into Star Wars, and he just never like let go of it. And there's there's a photo of him in Vietnam in a tent, and there's like a little. And, he, and the thing is too, he'll have like a note next to it. He'll have like a photo, and then he'll have a note about it. And he had a photo of himself in Vietnam, and it said like, "Here's me, you know, during the Tet Offensive. The Force was with me during Vietnam." And I never, I whenever I think of him, I always think of that. I always think of his this photo of him in Vietnam. Saying, you know, the force was with me during the Tet Offensive. So he's a veteran. He has a tattoo. I don't, it's like a military tattoo. Um, but he's a really nice guy. And uh, one time he was in town here, like Aberdeen's maybe an hour away, maybe 45 minutes away. can't remember. But he was here in Olympia, and I saw him in the Target parking lot many years ago, and he, he had a big van. And the back doors were just open with like carpets sticking out, and he was like frantically like walking around the van. I don't know what was going on. I found out he would do birthday parties, which just must be who needs a clown when that guy comes by? And I mean that in the best possible way. Like having that guy like run a kid's birthday party, it's like just like Star Wars junk thrown around. Like I don't imagine it's like some glossy like Star Wars spread. I imagine he just comes in and like throws junk all over the room and it's all like it's like valuable Star Wars stuff just like strewn about mixed with like crap like postcards or something. But anyway like so he was in the news recently and you know my friend Miles sent me the link remembering that I talk about this guy and I, I forgot that I'd even talk to Miles about him but he he I, he said i've talked about him like five times uh, over the years but which is not a lot for me that's actually a low number but this guy you know he he's obviously been sucked into the culture war as who who hasn't i mean that's what we're talking about like when i talk about that guy who's like spin magazine circus magazine guitar guitar world did a top 10 drummers classic rock drummers list and it didn't have a single black man you know, it's like that, that same sort of culture war mindset. Like this guy's obviously gotten sucked into it because he put like a handwritten note in the window of his store. And keep in mind the windows of his store are like covered in shit. You know, it's like Star Wars posters, just random hokey stuff that he made. He's got like a – like a is it a Velociraptor? No, it's, it must be a Star Wars thing. There's some place that has a Velociraptor outside of it. I don't know what it is. There, there's a store at the ocean in this tiny little town. There's a candy store that has a giant Velociraptor in it. No, but he has stuff like I think he has like a a fake Princess layer, layer Princess Layer. He has like a giant fake like Princess Layer mannequin out front, and just junk. And but he wrote this little point being he wrote this little note on just like an eight and a half by eleven piece of paper, and it said like just so you know. Like, if you're born with a dick, you're not a chick. And I feel like he even like put asterisks. I think he even like, you know, censored out the word dick or something like that. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. But there's like a transgender like city council, councilor, And uh, they confronted him and way bigger than he is. Like, he looked like a little, he looked like a tiny little, he looked like a Jawa in the photos I saw. But he was confronted, and they told him to take it down. They said, take down, it's hurtful. And he said, I don't give a shit. I was in Vietnam. And so he's clearly a guy, like, you can look at that guy, and like, all the liberals are going to say, oh, what a piece of shit. Oh, what a fucking Star Wars piece of shit. You know, it's like, that's the attitude that people would take. I just see it. it's like a guy who doesn't need to deal with any of this stuff that people are throwing out there. He's like a guy who just wanted to run a weird little junk Star Wars store that's also a landmark because people go there from all over. Like, ki- Like parents take their kids there. And it's like everybody's gotten so polluted that it's like he felt like he needed to put that in his store window, which go right ahead. I don't think that was the best decision. Like, as, as the owner of the Star Wars store, I don't think you needed to make a statement about the transgender debate. Like, I don't think you needed to put that in the window of your Star Wars store. But you know what? As he said, he doesn't give a shit. And I don't think he's a hateful guy. I just think it's like everybody's gotten sucked into this thing, especially people like that. Like, he is a Vietnam vet. He was in the Tet offensive. I'll take him for his word. And so it's like – it's just this sort of thing where it's like it's like a whole world that that guy wasn't ready to contend with that a lot of people weren't. And, you know, the Olympics are going on and there's been this constant discussion of that with the Olympics. And I hate the Olympics to begin with. I love football, but I, I, I can't stand all that stuff. And they can go ahead and do it. I'm not saying to not have the Olympics, but it's just I can't pretend to be interested in the Olympics – I really can't pretend to be into the Olympics when it has these like strong socio-political undercurrents to the whole thing. It just, it, it really does come across like a nation on the verge of collapse. And so all of that is like spinning around in this guy's head. And you know, it sucks for everybody like, he didn't need to put that in the window. I wouldn't tell him not to. It's his store. If he, if he if he wants to put political statements in his store window, he's old. He's like 80 years old. You know, go for it. I wouldn't recommend that. But do you need to even confront it? I don't know. It's just it's just this silly world we're in where that's what's going on. And, like, I don't know. Just seeing that, I'm like, uh, geez. Geez. I laughed. I mean, I laughed at the whole thing, like seeing that guy like gesticulate and explain himself because they were like, don't you realize like, like uh, a journalist tried to interview him and he stood out front of his store and he was, you know, he, he came across like my experience with him where he was kind of like jovial. But then when they were like, don't you care that you hurt people's feelings? He was like, I don't give a shit. I was in Vietnam it is kind of hard to argue with that on just like a human level where it's like if that guy really did see people die and you know participate in war, that's a that's a speaking of another world, like that's a whole other world and i I, I don't know, I don't feel like that's a terrible argument. Maybe I'm an idiot, <laughs> but I kind of feel like when someone at eighty years old is just like, I want to say what I want to say. Because that guy, if the culture war hadn't dominated everything, that guy would just keep running his Star Wars store. None of this would have ever happened. But it's like, it's the same exact thing as being like, this top 10 list needs this. It's just this world of telling people what to do. I think that's what it all comes down to. It's not about one thing or another. It's the same thing. I mean, you can play the both sides thing, of course. Like, I remember when the right wing was trying to censor Harry Potter, you know, those stupid too. If we want to keep going, we can. You know, and that's another form of that thing, like saying like, oh, well, the left is, is trying to tell people what to do. Well, I remember when the right wing was telling people to do. And guess what? If the right wing gained cultural power again, which they have very little of right now, at least in the mainstream, but if the right gained political power again, truly gained, not, not political power, but more cultural power, they would start overstepping their bounds too, because that's what people do when they have power. When people have power, they start trying to tell people what to do, especially when they have cultural power. And... Uh, You know, So a lot of it just comes down to that. And if you want to talk about all the different people throughout history that have tried to tell people do, you're just going to be talking about world history because that's every government. If you want to cite every example of somebody from any given political slant and talk about when they did it too, well, you're going to be here forever. You're going to be talking about every single king every single president every single government you're going to be you can just keep going back further and further and and so it's it's a it's like a similar form of thinking like i wish i would have done this 20 years ago why didn't i do this then you know, it's like that it's living in the past in a certain way and like right now i feel that some people are telling people what to do more than others and when that happens those are the people that rub me the wrong way. And a friend of mine, it's not, not my friend Nick that I reference here, uh, my childhood friend, but like my my friend Nick G who listens. I sometimes, he'll listen to this show and give me like feedback. And, you know, he'll sometimes, like when I go on kind of like a more conservative bend, he'll kind of be like, well, what about the environment? And yeah, I, I am an environmentalist. You know, I, I, at no point am I trying to say that like, I'm a Republican, you know, like I, I have a, a fairly diverse take on different things, but I also don't care. I I don't pride myself on that either. Like that's another form of like having a rap side, like, like that's actually perfect. Cause like, let's look at like Joe Rogan or somebody like that who, you know, he's fine like I don't understand like his own fans will be tearing him apart they're like he already said that it's like don't listen th- don't listen to a- the same person on a podcast for 9 hours every week if you don't want to hear them repeat themselves but it's like that's the world we're in where it's like people's own fans are destroying them their enemies are destroying them but it's like Joe Rogan is harmless he's 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 like one of the most harmless I mean, I think most people are fairly harmless actually, but it's when they get together that's the problem. Um, I'm sure there's a George Carlin bit about that. But like with Joe Rogan, like something he'll do is he'll be like, I'm pretty much a liberal, blah, 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 but I own guns. You know, and so it's like sometimes people kind of use that. It's like they're like being like, oh, well, like you thought that I only listened to, to black metal? I also listen to uh, Juvenile and Cardi B and uh, Lil Wayne. I, I can't come up with names very well. You know, it's like trying to be like, well, you thought I was this. Well, I'm also this. And it's good that people don't try to fit into a box, but it's like I do try not to do that. Like, I don't feel like I have to qualify myself. Like, I don't have to, like, volunteer... That just because I believe A, I also believe Z, which is totally different, dude. You know, because sometimes it's like you you can try too hard to assert your individuality. And that's always a struggle for me. Um, What am I even talking about? I'm just asserting my individuality now. But no, I don't know. I guess I don't feel the need to always be like, yeah, I'm talking about this, but I also have to address this unrelated thing so that I don't seem like I have the wrong stance on it. Not that my friend does that. No, he gives me really valuable feedback and it's good for me to be reminded of some of those things because I get as clouded as everybody else. Like I bet this show sometimes becomes that Star Wars store owner putting that freaking note in his window. Sometimes I bet that those of you who still listen to this show are probably like, God, he didn't need to put that in the window. You know, that probably happens on this show. And I I like that there's people who respect me who who do say like, well, what about this? Like, you know, I, I really value that sort of, I value counterpoint. You know, I value counterpoint and... That's sort of what, like, the internal process is, too, that I was talking about earlier, about, like, rebelling against yourself. Like, when you rebel against who you think you are, like, sometimes that's what the people in your life will do for you. Sometimes that's what your friends will do for you. Like, like, I was having a conversation with a friend today who was visiting, and I mentioned something, and and I didn't... My opinion didn't change at the end of the conversation, but, like, she decided to kind of provide counterpoint to something I said that I didn't even intend to be a debate. It was just like an offhand remark. But you know what's funny about that is when I said it, like when I made the remark, which had nothing to do with her, it was just it was about another situation, when I said it, I kind of thought, hmm, I have that feeling, my, that intuitive feeling that that wasn't necessarily the right thing to say. And sure enough, it, it provoked kind of like not an argument, but just kind of like a back and forth that really didn't end up getting anywhere you know it was I don't know it was just um, but I kind of felt like it was unnecessary for me to even bring it up and and because it provoked kind of a debate that I didn't I don't feel like really even needed to happen. That's just, that's what happens when you, that's like the chain reaction of going against your intuition. But sometimes you don't even know that you've gone against your intuition until you've said the thing that, you know, sets off that chain reaction. But counterpoint is good. Like, I never, honestly, I I, I honestly seek more counterpoint. And I don't like to, but, but if somebody doesn't understand you, it sucks. Like, if somebody's going to offer counterpoint to you, I do feel that they have to kind of get you or get your point, not get you. They have to actually understand your point. And that's why people like are not even talking about the same thing. Cause you know what that star Wars guy was really saying to me? Like I'm not his lawyer. As far as I'm concerned, he didn't do anything legally wrong. Somebody might arrest him in fucking England today for doing that. Things like that happen. Like when they arrested that 12 year old kid for what he said online. Like, do you really need to be doing that? Is that real? Do you need to arrest a 12-year-old for what he said online, no matter how bad it was? He didn't threaten to kill anybody. He offended somebody and you arrested him. Um, if you didn't hear about that, it was like a year ago, I think. And it was real. That happened. Um, there was even like a police press release. Where they were like, we arrested a 12-year-old boy. We arrested a 12-year-old boy. And, like, the way they framed it was sickening because, like, they completely lost sight of the fact that they arrested a 12-year-old boy for saying something that was probably stupid and ignorant. That maybe, I mean, the police didn't need to be involved. What kind of federal, I mean, I don't care if it's municipal police. I don't care if it's fucking FBI agents or whatever they have in England, whatever the Redcoats have in England. I don't care what law enforcement agency it is. They don't need to be involved in a 12-year-old boy's offensive remark. They don't have any business in that. But, uh, you know, with this with this Star Wars guy, like, I'm not his lawyer. I don't need to, to defend him. But the way I see it, it's like he wasn't even really addressing men and women and dicks and chicks his crass little like, it has got a dick, it ain't a chick. He probably laughed at that. I can imagine he laughed when he wrote that. But like what he was saying, like the way, I, having met that guy numerous times and one, not finding you know it, it to be that big of a deal, but having, you know, just knowing that guy's personality, it's like, I think that what that guy was going through was kind of like, just leave me the heck alone. And I mean, my joke, like when miles told me about that, was like this I was like, this is what happens when you completely ruin Star Wars because that guy liked the prequels. Like he didn't give a shit about like the he he didn't make any distinction. like to him, Star Wars really was just like the force. You could tell like it like when he said that the force was with me in the Tet offensive, like think about what that means to that guy. even if it's kind of a joke. Like, he has this little picture of himself in Vietnam in a freaking tent. And he says, like, the force was with me during this violent conflict. Like, the force must mean something to that guy. And you got that feeling when you went to his store. You got the feeling that, like, that guy's religion was Star Wars, but not in an annoying way where there's, like, moms and dads with matching star wars outfits and their kids have them too for their christmas photos like not even in that way like for this guy it's like the way that he just had star wars memorabilia thrown all around there's no attempt to be like to have like a clean aesthetic like that guy just believed in the force and uh then they ruined Star Wars even more. Like, he didn't even care about the prequels, though. Like, I remember asking him, I was like, what do you think about the prequels? And he's like, I just like it all. It's the Force. You know, anything that, to him, communicates the Force was good enough. And I'm doing a whole lot of mind reading here. I'm, I'm seeing into this guy's soul, but... That's, that was the vibe I got because like, he, he's like, I don't even think about the fact that the prequels are good or bad. Like to him, it was just all Star Wars and it was all good. But then it's like there's – I had the same feeling when I saw the new Star Wars movies. Like when I saw The Force Awakens, like my girlfriend at the time was like, oh, I saw the new Star Wars with my mom. Like you got to see it. It's 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 much more like the old ones and it's, it's good. And I was like nee, – nee. and I saw it and it was like I went along with it. Like, I'm not an asshole. Like, I told my girlfriend I liked it. I didn't. I kind of had this... It was worse than the prequels to me. Like, I didn't... Like, the prequels to me were like an intellectual thing. Where, like, when I saw the prequels, I thought, like, huh. This sucks, but it's more like an intellectual exercise. It's It's like reading information and being like, oh, this is bullshit. Whereas, like, when I saw The Force Awakens, it's like... It, it was wearing the corpse of Star Wars as its skin and trying to tell you it was like the originals. But in my stomach, I could feel it. In my stomach, I was like, this isn't it. And it's actually more offensive than the prequels are in some strange way. I bet you that that guy who runs the Star Wars store, maybe he, maybe not. Maybe he would tell you The Force Awakens was awesome. Uh, <laughs> it's about the Force. But like... My theory is that, like, they ruined Star Wars. They, like, the prequels were, like, so bad they're almost good. Like, the prequels actually got a lot of life out of people. Like, people who, there are people who, like, I've seen, like, people who hated the prequels who, who are obsessed and watch them. You don't do that with the new movies, though. The new movies, you're just kind of like, hmm, it sucks, but I, I really never want to see it again. It made me feel something weird in the pit of my stomach. So maybe that's what that guy was responding to. They took Star Wars away. They milked Star Wars for all it's worth, but not even milked it. They skinned it and, and, you know, put it on something else that's far more amorphous and unrecognizable. It's the dark side of the force. That's the feeling. So where this guy's coming from is the culture war came to everybody's doorstep. He's just living in his own world. The dark side of the force is out there and a lot of us feel it right now. Not that it's 100% evil. But it's one of those things where it's just like we all kind of have that feeling. That's that sense of dread. I mean, that's kind of that sense of dread that I was talking about to start out this episode. I was just thinking, huh, you know, the dark side of the force is, is still there. It's still, I still feel it. And it makes people do haywire things. It makes people think that they need to put some crude handwritten note in the window of their Star Wars store that gives their opinion on... Dicks and chicks and dickies and chickies. It'd be better if it was dickies and chickies. And then it's all, the dark side of the force is also what made someone confront him at his store and tell him to take his sign down. And the dark side of the force in Star Wars is exactly that. It's, it's, it's trying to tell people what to do. It's trying to control people. And life's a continual lesson in that. Life is a continual lesson in not trying to control people. And I, I you know, haven't been in a relationship in a really long time. And I've never been controlling. I've never tried to control any women I'm with. I wouldn't respect the woman I'm with if she let me control her. Or she didn't have her own personality. Or her own, um, just you know, didn't have her own thing going on. So none of this comes from like a personal experience with that, but it's, um, you know, I, 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 the reason I bring up relationships is just because like, that's like the number one place where I just see people trying to control people and friends will tell me about their dating experiences. It seems like everybody's going through some sort of weird, bizarre cat, like dating catabasis right now, whether it's like the. A long-term thing or a short-term thing. It's like, I feel like every single person I know has been through some sort of like romantic catabasis and I haven't. And so I, and I, and I've been in my own world for the last two weeks, deeply, deeply in my own world. And when people come to me, like, and and bring things up that are going on, like I listen and I, I care, but it's also, it feels very foreign to me right now. And the dark you know, the dark side of the force is evident because so much of it comes down to people trying to control their people. Like of so, so much of it comes down from like trying to convince people to do what you want them to do. And, you know, I, have said before, it's like, I, I, well, I haven't been in a relationship in a very long time, but I, you know, I'm a monogamous person. I believe in Monogamy. Not as something to, again, not because I'm telling other people they have to do that. I just know that that's what I prefer. I prefer monogamy, 100%. 100%. No room for anything else. And it's that's that to me, though, because the thing is, like, people who are liberal, polyamorous, whatever, like, they try to frame monogamy and ideas like marriage and commitment, not even marriage and commitment, but just like monogamy. Let's just stick with that one. They tra- they frame that, that it's about controlling somebody and like forcing somebody to not fulfill their desire. Like, ooh, so what if your wife wants to suck her coworkers? Uh, you know, it's it, there's that sort of attitude. It's like, she should be able to do what she wants and you shouldn't feel jealous. You know, it's about discipline. It's not even about... Like, jealousy is is something... Sometimes jealousy is right. I talked about that a little while back. Like, where sometimes jealousy is actually right. Like, sometimes your, your jealousy isn't a disease. Like, jealousy can be the worst thing in the world. And, like, men will kill their wives because they just perceive that something is going on when it's not. Like, people's jealousy will turn them into paranoid monsters... But still, like, there's a reason why that feeling exists. And sometimes it's that same feeling that tells you, this is wrong speech, or I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't bring that up. It's that same feeling that I'm getting at here, that dark side of the force, where it's like, that's the dark side of the force, like, swelling up inside of you. And, you know, the dark side of the force loves jealousy, because jealousy is a wide-open gateway darkness can enter through it. but still sometimes you feel jealous and that it's telling you something's wrong look out for yourself. And with um, like the, the trying to control people thing though I don't see monogamy as control. I see it as discipline and for me it's never really been an issue. Like I've been in in long-term relationships, whatever counts for long-term in my life, not, not very long, but I've been in committed relationships where I go out and I get freaking blackout drunk with female friends and nothing happens because I guess for me, it's not even about discipline in that regard. It's just like, I don't need that in my life, you know, and I'm not, and I don't judge anybody for committing adultery or... Sexual misconduct, that's in the Buddhist precepts as well. That's one of the core Buddhist precepts is no sexual misconduct, which includes infidelity. I mean, people can frame it different ways. But that's one of those things that makes you feel like you're wrong. I've never cheated on somebody. But still, I, I know that, that deep down people feel wrong for doing that. And it's not because of Christian morality. It's not because of you're, you're brainwashed. It's because somewhere along the lines, like all of these religions developed guidelines, if not rules about that. And they didn't all conspire. Like Buddhism didn't conspire with Christianity to both challenge adultery and tell you not to do it. Like They didn't conspire. They both figured that out on their own because human beings figured that out out on their own. And a lot of those commandments, a lot of those precepts are feelings you have inside, which might very well be why people think they come from God. Because it almost is sort of a supernatural communication telling you not to do something or not to do it again. Because sometimes you only feel it after you've already done it. And when that happens, it's easy to be like, well, it's too late now. No, it's not too late. You, you can avoid doing it again. Now that you know how it feels, you can avoid doing it again. But no, monogamy isn't about control. It's about discipline. And that's why it's such a problem is because somebody is communicating that they're not disciplined. They don't have the discipline to resist their desire. Does their life depend on sleeping around on getting validation from other people? Does their life do they require that to be who they are? If they feel so if they if they think so, okay that's how people feel about like like eating a second tub of ice cream? You know it, it, should you not eat a second tub of ice cream? Or, or should you eat a second tub of ice cream because that's what you desire i can tell you when i'm stoned out of my mind and i can't stop eating it's just pure desire which is another precept which is avoid intoxicants that you know basically lower your resistance That is one of the precepts, is that avoid intoxicants that lower your resistance. I know it's phrased different ways, but that's the basic idea. And people will be like, well, I was drunk. She was hot and I was drunk. And deep down, you know that's wrong and you know that's a bad excuse. And there's a comorbidity to violating multiple rules. As I've talked about on here before, when you develop a discipline in one thing, it helps you develop disciplines in other other things. It's a process and formula that interlocks. You can develop multiple disciplines. I talked about on here before where like when I got into like fitness, for example, that actually helped me be more disciplined about art when I want to do art. Art isn't something that I tell myself, oh, I'm going to draw for an hour a day. That does have to be something that I want to do if I'm going to do it. I have to have an idea or some... I just have to have momentum. But it helps me commit to it. When you develop one discipline, it interlocks with other disciplines. It becomes easier to form other disciplines. When I started working out, I was like, I'm not going to change the way I eat. But gradually I started to think, you know, like, hey, I'm kind of doing this... This fitness already. So why don't I also tighten up my diet to enhance this practice? And because I was already disciplined in terms of fitness, and there was sort of this logic to it, where it was like, why don't I also eat well, because it'll, it'll give me better results from my fitness. I don't know, it, it made it easier. Like I was able to start eating a much healthier diet that I would never imagine eating. If I hadn't already been working out because those two disciplines interlocked and they both literally feed into each other. Like on days where I work out, that 100% informs what I'm going to eat. And the same is true for when on days when I don't work out. And it applies to everything. Like, I probably wouldn't have committed as as well to meditation, which I've only done a couple times recently because I've been doing other things. Longest I've gone, you know, I've I've barely missed a day of meditation in years. But the last, like, I I think I took nine days, maybe did it once in that period. But I was in such a pure state that I didn't need to. Like Alan Watts says you know, paraphrasing him, but you meditate so you don't have to meditate. The idea is not to be attached to meditation. Like today I didn't meditate and I can feel it. Today would have been a good day to meditate. I didn't, so what am I going to beat myself up? Because I didn't meditate this morning, am I going to spend all day thinking like, uh, why didn't you meditate? That'd just be me saying, why didn't you include this in your top 10 list? It's the same thing. Why didn't you blah, blah, blah? Well, I can't go back and meditate this morning again. I mean, I can't go back. I can't. If if, Let's say you gave me a time machine right now. Let's say a time machine appeared in my kitchen right now. Am I going to go back to this morning so that I can meditate? No. But anyway, the reason I bring up meditation again is because I was already I, I was already developing certain disciplines in my life and they interlock. Like you get used to scheduling your day more. You get used to doing things with a certain amount of deliberation. You get used to committing to a certain rhythm in your life and other things can fit into that rhythm. And you know how and where they're going to fit in too. Like if you work out every other day for a certain amount of time, you know where meditation is going to fit into your day. If you have a work schedule, if you have this or that, if you do a certain thing every day at a certain time, and it's something you have to do, and then beyond that, you've also added other things that you've chosen to do, but they become necessary because discipline starts to feel really necessary when you develop it. And it's not demanding, but it's still necessary. And then so you decide, oh, hey, you know, if I want to take 20 minutes, a half hour to meditate every day, too, I know where that's going to fit in. And because it fits in, it has a higher chance of staying there. It interlocks. And so to me, what disgusts me, and I'll readily admit it disgusts me, what disgusts me about infidelity is it's undisciplined. And it's a sign of other undisciplined behavior. Like the sort of person who cheats on you because that's what they desire is also the sort of person who eats your food. (laughs) You know, who eats the thing, Who like you got yourself a treat. And they're gonna eat it because they want it. Not that they're not that the same person is gonna do that, but to me it's like sort of the same idea. Maybe not the best example, but similar. Similar. Cl- close enough for this long rambling episode. But that's kind of where I come from on that. Is that like when someone shows a lack of discipline in a relationship, it's often a sign of other undisciplined behavior, and maybe you yourself are doing something. You know, people do push each other into other people's arms. You know, I'm not saying that anybody's totally innocent. I'm not saying that anybody's perfect. But when people try to frame monogamy around control, and you know, I I don't know that I've ever been cheated on. I think I have, but I don't know. And you know what, what's really awesome about time and just being on your own tour of the world is that like you look back on those times where you're like you know she went to that party right before we broke up and she seemed kind of weird ever since she went to that party like she seemed like she had a guilty conscience the timing is weird i i had a vibe you know what she probably did and she did the right thing by ending the relationship you know and and i am talking about a real event where I remember thinking like did something happen did it not I'm still friends with that person distantly but we've we've maintained you know a friendship over the years you know we had a time in our life uh, together and I I couldn't care less now I, I really it doesn't even feel like the same life it doesn't even it doesn't even matter it would matter if I was involved with somebody else and I felt that way but in terms of that it's like who cares now And some people cling to that. That's being attached to that negative feeling. If I stayed attached to whether or not my girlfriend in my 20s, in my mid-20s cheated on me right before she broke up with me, if I stayed attached to that, that's just staying attached to hell. That's just staying attached to, that's going down into a catabasis and saying, I'm going to stay here. Because people get a lot of meaning out of that. People like to complain, you know, it's just, it sucks. It sucks. It's not even their fault. They just don't know what else to do. Like when you meet somebody and they can't stop complaining about like their ex-wife or their ex-husband, it's like, oh, you're, you're down, you know, you're going through catabasis and you never quite got yourself out because you like it down there. It gives you something to talk about. It gives you something to hold on to. But man... Even I can feel how much that sucks, and I'm not you. So yeah, I'm. I, I I might have been cheated on, but it's it's left into this. It's in this ambiguous void where I don't know for sure. But it doesn't seem to have been an ongoing thing. It doesn't seem. It doesn't seem to be. It's not something that plagued me. Like I'm not like. My friend was dating this dude, and and she she said like like one of his first maybe his wife or his like girlfriend like like a form like a formative relationship in his life like he got lied to and really screwed over and now he's just like poisoned he was just poisoned by that experience and that sucks it's like trauma that's like all these these words people use but it just i use the word sucks that just sucks but now you're stuck you're just in that you're attached to that you see the world that way. So I'm not that way. Like when I talk about like monogamy, it doesn't come from a place of like, I got cheated on. And so therefore, like I just harp on monogamy all the time. Like I'm not coming from that place at all. And it's only recently that I've really narrowed that feeling down. Cause I have asked myself about that. Like I've known these, I live in Olympia, Washington. I've known probably the freaking like two dozen polyamorous couples since I've lived here, especially when I drank. Turns out, let's <laughs> well, well, that's actually a good example. Why is it that like most of the polyamorous couples I met were people that I met like partying and drinking, engaging in undisciplined behavior? Not that I'm saying everybody who's like polyamorous has a drinking problem or anything, but in my experience, like that was when I came into contact with all that. It was with people who just were indulging in things all the time. And I, I, but I, because I've heard people make these arguments though, like for polyamory and I've seen interviews, I've seen podcasts with people who kind of preach that stuff or talk about it. And I listen to their points. It's not like I'm like, you're stupid and you what you're saying, I can't even listen. I'm, I'm going to c- cover my ears. I don't even come from that place about it. But I have kind of tried to think, like, do I actually believe in that? Why do I think monogamy is important? And, and I've only recently realized, oh, discipline. Somebody who's going to break that, somebody who, who's going to lie. I mean, lying is extremely undisciplined. It's its own discipline, but it's, it's a dark discipline. Lying is a dark discipline that makes the world smaller. Whereas when you live an honest life, a most, when you try to be honest and you live a generally honest life, the world's a lot more open and it's a lot bigger. You don't have to remember your lies. Because lies become this like handrail that you're handcuffed to. And sometimes you don't even know. Like I talked on here about like, at an early age, I lied to somebody about having seen Friday the 13th. And I kind of convinced myself over the years that I had seen it. I'm not a pathological liar, but you can see how like they they sneak in. Lies will sneak into your life and you don't even remember. You don't even remember that you lied. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) and, And so it's like you can see where... Somebody who cheats on somebody is lying to that person, lying to that person. They are violating some sort of other commitment. They're breaking multiple disciplines is what I'm saying. And they're making their relationship a charade. Um. And so I just see it as a sign of worse things. Like, I can be friends with undisciplined people, but it's extremely difficult to be a disciplined person and be committed as man and woman. I, I think in or, or you know, I don't know. I, I think my point has been made. I'm getting tired. It's just the, like positive disciplines interact. Like if you develop a positive discipline, that in turn will help you develop more positive disciplines. And if you participate in negative disciplines, the difference is negative disciplines are easier, but they're still disciplines. You just don't think of them that way. Like the same mechanism, the same physical mechanism that makes me get up and go to the pantry with glazed shark eyes and grab another snack and then get up and do it again, that's a rhythm, that's a discipline too, but I don't realize it because it's magnetic. And that's what's scary about darkness is there's this sort of like magnetism to it that you do it and it is this like dark discipline in its own right but you're not conscious of it whereas like positive disciplines you're conscious of but the thing about putting those into practice is that the more you do them the more they become magnetic too it's just that the magnetism of darkness like I was talking about with attachment like when you're attached to negative feelings for example it's more than willing to meet you halfway It's more than than willing to be like, oh, you're gonna you're gonna crawl down here? Here, let me help you. I'll pull you down. And so it can be harder because you know it's this downward fall. Like if you're falling off of a building, it's easier than climbing. But what's gonna happen? Like, oh, wow, this sure is easier. I'm not, I don't have to use my legs. I don't even, I don't even have to use my, I don't even have to move. I can just fall. Splat, splat. So that's kind of what I'm getting at is it's, you know, you, you're you in a free fall though, and you're going to go splat. Whereas, you know, if you're developing, if you're developing a positive discipline, it's going to be more difficult But the more you do it, the easier it's going to get. And when you experience breakthroughs, when you experience benefits, it becomes just as automatic as going to the pantry. It becomes something that you just do and you make time for it. Because the mechanism of getting up and going to the pantry, it's identical to the mechanism that doing push-ups, you know, like when you get down on the floor and do 10 push push-ups. That's the same mechanism as getting up and walking across the room. You're doing something. It's just one of them you're conscious of and one of them you're not, which is why you should be aware, which is why you should be conscious, which is why intelligence is consciousness. It is awareness. And that is what forms knowledge. And with dark things, sometimes you don't even realize you're doing them. But with good things, you do realize it. But you don't want that to trick you or trip you. Like, even though I'm very into fitness, I sometimes tell myself, it's okay if you can't do this forever. The plan is to do this forever. And it's important enough that I plan on it. (laughs) You know, I I truly, I plan on doing this forever. But if tomorrow I'm in a wheelchair, I can't allow that to be a negation. If tomorrow I can't work out ever again, I don't want to live my life saying, God, I used to be able to work out and it sucks now. You know, I, I never want to think that way about it. You do kind of want to take a here-I-am approach to things. But as long as something's in your ability, you know, you can do it. And sometimes all it takes is doing it once to realize that it's possible. But you should always be aware of like cause desire is that desire is that free fall desire is that free fall that's like whoo this feels I feel liberated I'm doing the thing I want to do and it's easy but you're free falling and you know you're going to eventually hit something hopefully some of this makes sense I feel better I feel better than I did when I started this, and that's good enough for me, man, because that's kind of where I lean this, this point. What are the things that I feel better about when I do them? This show is one of them, not always, but overall, like when I do this show, I sometimes think, oh, what's somebody going to think about it? Oh, I'm egocentric. Oh, I only talk about myself. Who wants to hear me talk about myself all the time? I second-guess myself. I criticize myself. But usually when I do things, I'm pretty happy. Like, usually when I do this, I'm pretty happy with it. When I work out, I'm happy with it. When I meditate, I'm happy with it. When I when I do something productive, I never think like, Hey, I wish I hadn't done that. Whereas there's so many other things that desire leads you to that makes you regretful. And worse than that, sometimes you can convince yourself that that's who you are and what you want. One of the reasons Buddhism discourages giving into your desire all the time is because you form a new identity based on that desire. And you think that that's who you are. So somebody who, you know, you know, somebody who gives in to desire has convinced themselves that their identity depends on that desire. They're not who they truly are if they don't give in to that desire. Maybe it's true sometimes. I mean, we have our passions, but I think that's one of the oldest tricks in the book is making you think that your desire is who you are. And sometimes doing the thing that you don't want to do is what you should do. And its value becomes more apparent once you've done it. And you, you, if nothing else, the fact that you don't regret having done it is all the evidence you need. That's about all I got tonight. A little sermon all over the place. Everything's hyperlinked. I mean, I, I, I've, I've recognized, just working on some different things utilizing some different ways of expressing myself recently and trying to understand what I'm trying to say, trying to put things in writing lately. You know, it's, it's really made it apparent, like, how much thought is hyperlinked. And that's something that meditation really hammered home to me. It was through meditation that I realized, oh, all of my thoughts are hyperlinked together. Like, that thought, you know, came from this other thought. Like, one word or one part of another thought branched into this thought that I'm having right now. It reminded me of something. It's like clicking on a a Wikipedia link. You're reading a Wikipedia article, and a word is hyperlinked, and you click on it, and it opens a new tab, and that's what happens to your mind when you don't clear it. Your mind ends up with all of these open tabs and it's chaos and you read part of one page and then you click to the other sometimes you close them but new ones keep appearing because everything's hyperlinked and you you can't resist the urge to click on it and that happens to me sometimes it's not any site that like functions like wikipedia where it's everything's hyperlinked and it compels you to open a lot of tabs, anything like that. Like sometimes I'll end up with tons of tabs like that open and I leave them there for a long time. And every time I look at them, I'm like, I'll get back to these later. I'll know what to, I'll read this article later. And then there'll be a day where I just look at my computer in the morning and I just close everything and I never think about it again. I never think, oh, I wish I would have read that. Like, there's a website, TV Tropes, that I go to like once a year, and it's 50 tabs open. 50 tropes that I want to read about. And I never end up reading them all, and then I keep telling myself I'm going to do it. It's hoarding. It's what you do when you accumulate objects, and you say, I'm going to make a use for that later. I know what I'm going to do with that later. Or I don't know what I'm going to do with that but I know that I'm going to have a use for it later. And then sometimes you just like look at all the stuff you've accumulated and you get rid of it. You say, I'm going to donate this. I'm going to sell this. I don't want this here anymore. And when you do it, you usually never think about that stuff again. Oh, you know, I like this table. Oh, I, re- I really like this end table. But I never really found a use for it. And it's just been in this closet or it's been in this corner of the room where it doesn't belong And you get rid of it, and you very rarely are going to be like, I I really miss that end table. I really miss all those tabs I closed. You usually don't think that way, which is why it's good to clear those things. And And when you clear those things, you get space to do something else, or to do something else entirely. That's truly all I got. This land is mine, God gave this land to me, this brave, this golden land to me, and when the sun reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children